How about, I think you mentioned some opening there as well. You just uh, moved something to production, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, yesterday we went live with a, uh, we, we usually try to go every third week or something like that, once a month, depending on how much work we, we actually, we actually um, uh, produce. But now we had probably worked for like three months, mm -hmm. which is so bad with all this modern software engineering as, uh, experience you have, you shouldn't. You should go to production often and small bad. Uh, small don't don't focus on a bad. You know, focus no, no, on but, a you but know, we now, went, now it was a big. It we was, had and finally yeah. we went to production. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah but it, it is actually, uh, and it went live and it, it was kind of smooth to go live. So what I've been doing the last two days is looking through all the Jira tickets and say that <laughs> I I ordered this. This is what I designed. Have they built it? Is it working? Does it produce the data? Is the data there that I, as I expect, because I'm going to use the system later on. To, yeah. uh, and Can you share it, anything about what the actually... Uh, you made or you built? What was uh, the feature? Uh, oh, it was a, a box of lot of features, but uh, it's for a big data real-time platform. So we ingest and we take like 7 million real-time events a day, 700 million, sorry. Uh, they come in a binary encoded format. It's very compact, uh, condensed uh, ones and zeros. We split those into records. We feed them into a, a real-time stream where we decode them in real-time and we enrich them. Because when we get the data, it's rather anonymous, you know. It's um, it's an event that a sim has connected to an operator somewhere in a, And it doesn't say. It just codes, okay? So we need to decorate this with, okay, which customer does this sim belong to in order to see correlations between uh, events and patterns on a customer Can it be level. a bit, you know, it's always yeah. nice for a listener to be, you know, give some concrete example or something. What is an event, you know? An case? event is, uh, uh, is, if you open your laptop here and you have a mm -hmm. Wi-Fi, what needs to go on before you actually can go out on the internet is mm -hmm. that there is some handshake between your client in the Wi-Fi uh, client in your computer and the Wi-Fi router. Yeah. That's the same thing when you have mobile phones. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you turn on your phone, it has to communicate and do some handshaking and say, this is I, am I allowed to attach to your network? Okay. Right. So in your room, when you go travel abroad, then it's even more complicated because then you can't just talk about the local network that is yours. So one of these handshakes, is that an event? As an example? That's an event. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So we can listen to this in, in, in real time. We don't tamper with information. We cannot, uh, but we can sniff to it and, and package samples of it. Uh, every single event is sampled and we get to start in the end state of those milliseconds of the event, which means that we know what was tried, that they tried to do and what the error code ended in. Okay, so it's, um, or if there was an error. So yeah. so we, we, we know the state of event mm. um, and all events. And those events then come in if between 500,000 and a million, million billion uh, events a day. And those are the ones that we process. And then so, you, and then basically, what, what is the business problem typically I mean, like on a higher aggregated level? Is it to optimize and identify deviations, fault detection? So for cust our customers, it's just uh, access to uh, network, okay? mm -hmm. access to, to, to connected services. Uh, but from our end, we, of course, try to optimize that. Uh, some customers want quality. S most customers want cost. <laughs> Yeah. Low cost, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and in order for us to deliver low cost, we need to also smartly choose which networks and priorities and so on. And that then we can learn from the connectivity pattern which are the working ones and where, where 
where we should we steer so because we can we can do some kind of steering in, in this control plane. so whenever a user mm. is turning on their mobile phone or you know connecting to to the internet uh, an, an event is being sent to telenor network right uh, yes or it happens at yes, telenor yeah. and it's it's a request to attach to the network yes okay and then because the, you are if you are just attached that someone want to get charged for your consumption there. Right. So the check the check that goes to us, the home network, is the one that confirms is there a roaming agreement? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And you have it, to identify the user, you have to know what kind of subscription they have, I guess, and, uh, and authorize if yes. they actually yeah. can be and we, to. we don't do that. That's of course core components in the mobile network. So that's capture uh, is done automatically but uh, what we do is that we configure what we prefer and what we the customers says that they want to allow okay because okay. they don't in, want in very of, high expensive networks for instance right. okay if they have a low cost product they can't charge hundreds of dollars for a megabyte mm. it right. it will it, it will kill the use case mm. so then they want only cheap Network, for instance, but you can select what kind of plan that they should go for, or what? what, what yeah, we, we can control almost every single step of it. Uh, mostly, it's access. What most customers are buying is access to a market. So, if they buy Germany, mm. they don't care about which operator. But we maybe have access to five, six operators, and we select those based on our based on the price point, yes, quality exactly. of service, yes, etc. Uh, I think people may not understand you know, mm. how complex the whole mobile ah, network yeah. setup is, but but if yeah. someone has a, subscri- a subscription with Telenor and they are currently in uh, in Germany, you mm. have to select some kind of operator in, in Germany that you co- collaborate with, right? Uh, not the, our customers, but if you buy a SIM card in Germany, yeah. you only get one operator because we have no, uh, you can't roam in your country, in Europe. If you buy a Telenor SIM, you yeah. can't use the, in Sweden. You can't use it to use Telian or or three or two. It's legally uh, blocked by yeah, so European you have your Union. SIM. Okay. So only, you can only roam to multiple networks outside your home network. So you have okay. uh, you have a Telenor SIM in Sweden. It means that you can only use the Telenor radio yes. base stations and networks yes. in Sweden. You can try it yourself. You, you can search for other networks, but you, it won't work. Yeah, but as soon as I now fly and I touch down in in uh, Germany, and you know I look at my phone, mm. and all of a sudden, oh, I got orange or yes. I got something, mm. you know. And that is something that is then roamed based on the collaborations that Telenor has with several German mobile operators. And in this way, if you travel across Germany, it might even be that while you're traveling, I had orange in the south and now I have Vodafone in the north. So now you describe what is so fantastic with a roaming-based model. Because then you can get access to better networks depending on where you are in a a country. So this is what our customers usually look for. They want good coverage everywhere in in all the parts of the world. And one single operator is not doing it for them. The second part that actually they are looking for is that if you're going to buy... Uh, set up one agreement, enterprise agreement with one operator in every single country, and you are like Volvo cars that deploy to like 100 countries. It's, and in each country, you also need to manage like thousands or hundred thousands of subscriptions. Right. When it's started, when should I just pause? When should I? It's, 
you have like 100 different portals to log into. It's impossible. So what we have is one portal where you can control all of this centrally. So that's a logistical problem we solve mm. for them. They get one invoice rather than 100 invoices. But now before mm. we get into Telenor connection yeah. and everything like that, I think this is the good time to basically start uh, with welcoming Anders Bresel. Thank you. And uh, what's your title now in Telenor? In Telenor uh, I'm head of data. Uh, head of data? Uh, yeah, I argued long ago what, what my title should <laughs> exactly. be, but uh, my, my, my manager had uh, <laughs> the management is, no, no, you're known as data, Mr. Mr. Data, you're going to be head of data. So, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Love, let's come back <laughs> to that. But let's start, you know, who is Anders and what is your story, how you ended up where you are right now? Yeah, uh, Anders, I live here in Stockholm. Um, currently work for Telenor Connection. Uh, but I started out somewhere in, you know, uh, gymnasium and thinking about what I'm going to do. And I was a kind of a lazy guy and thought maybe I shouldn't do as little as possible. Uh, but my mom convinced me, at least apply for some engineering stuff. So, okay, I Smart went by... Mom, STEM, <laughs> STEM mom. Yes, and uh, <laughs> uh, so I took this natural science technology program. Uh, when that was complete, I was so engaged into... Um, technology and, and stuff like that. Um, so I was 100% sure that I'm going to continue as a, as a, um, at a university in engineering programs. So uh, I had to, I was interested in everything. So I took the broadest program I could have ever found. It was for uh, engineering biology because there you had physics, math, uh, electronics, mechanics, and biology, and chemistry, so you know, engineering and physics. Biology. Engineering biology. Engineering biology. Civil engineering and engineering biology. Um, so biotech, in more biotech. or less, yeah. Uh, and what university was this? Uh, Linköping University. Linköping, of course, the best one. Yeah, the uh, best sorry. one, yes. I, uh, it's a fantastic place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so I went there, uh, and uh, it turned out that during those five years, I could, uh, I don't think I ever successfully during those times, uh, completed a wet lab with output <laughs> that could be interpreted. It was like inconclusive halfway through. You had so, a three weeks lab and you, you, after two, one week, you know, yeah, I won't get any results. You just continue to do methodology. So to wet lab, I don't have green fingers to uh, do chemistry stuff. No, <laughs> no it was, uh, it, I, I was really bad. So I realized this, I can, I can build a career on this. Uh, so I had to do some more theoretical parts. Uh, so I started to go towards um, uh, bioinformatics. So bioinformatics is taking biology problem and solve them in a computer. So mm -hmm. I had to add some more computer science stuff and programming language and so on. And that was super fun. It was just emerging field uh, back in Sweden then. Uh, maybe this was around millennium, uh, mm -hmm. something around that. Um and I got the opportunity to go down to Lund and start at AstraZeneca, do my master's thesis with one of the more profiled persons, Bruce Fedemenius, uh, that was a bioinformaticians that were speaking at different conferences and so on. Um, so I got a, a master's thesis there. And he wrote, sort of mentored me about industrial uh, scale research. And I was so amazed and said, I want to do this for life. Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, but I also quickly understood that when I was, he was mentoring in my, in, I was a student, but he invited me to like, or like budget meetings and everything. Just, you, you should learn about this. You should, you should understand what's going on. And Fantastic. I, yeah. And I, I did. And then I realized whenever you, both in scientific meetings and, uh, and decision meetings, those that were not, um, had a, a PhD title, they had so little to contribute in the discussions. 
So that got me thinking. I don't want to sit there and just listen to the others. I want to what contrib- kind of discussions do you mean? I mean, it was like a design of studies. It was uh, why university. didn't it work? And uh, yes, it was like all these mm-hmm. problem-solving things about the challenges that the company was facing around the current business. They were like, okay, you decide and I go out and, and do. <laughs> and I, I, I wanted to be engaged in those discussions. So I realized, okay, um, I love what I'm doing. Uh, uh, I love to be student. It's nice. Mm-hmm. Everything is cheap. You have good beer and lots of time. <laughs> you can focus on stuff you want. And I can do this for five more years and, and be a doctor in the end and get to my career goal. Okay. So that's what I did. I went back to the Linship University and did five years, uh, learned machine learning on biological data. Which department was that? In uh, IFM is IFM. in Swedish Institutionen för det mesta. Or... or Uh, Institute for Physics, Measurement Technology, Biology and Chemistry, I think it is. And it's this uh, cross science. Yeah, I think it's 450 or 500 back then. Lots of lots of time. Uh, and which years did you do the PhD between? Was it from? 2000? I started maybe 2002 and uh, was done early 2018. 18? Yes. Eight. 2008, sorry. <laughs> Someone is awake at least. Yeah. No, no, no. Someone had a party. Had a party. <laughs> yeah, so but I was, it's almost at the same time. I started a bit earlier than you ah, in Shopping, okay. but yeah. I started in 2000. But but yeah, uh, we, I don't think we met at the Shopping. No, maybe. Uh, I was mostly, uh, I, I was had some Ida. connections at Ida and uh, Paul Lambrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was my, uh, my, 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 examined for my master thesis oh, right. and he 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 set in place actually the, the profile of uh, bioinformatics mm. for my program so uh, what he did actually was me and some other uh, students we we handpicked different courses from different uh, and then we decided this is the curricula uh, <laughs> uh, aha and then he looked at okay so there, there are many people that want to go this route and we create a profile on this and he Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what was your thesis? What was your um, work focused on? Oh, it was uh, protein sequencing, uh, pattern recognition. So it was uh, machine learning methods to classify protein families. And from that, you can draw insights from if one protein belongs to family, you can transfer the characteristics or the functionality of that. So let's go nerdy. What, 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 what machine learning? What did you actually yeah, do? Yeah, thank you for not asking about the biological part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I went to the machine Yes, learning. yes. So... Uh, Uh, I mean, uh, neural networks were available at that time, but we sort of learned in the field that they were extremely unreliable in that time. They didn't converge, okay? They could luckily work or they normally did not. It was so easy to overtrain them. So uh, the best in class back then was usually support vector machines. And that's what I I was really good at. Um, uh, That and, and building different algorithms to build different, patterns to uh, feed into like, uh, oh yeah, uh, this hidden Markov models, which is a, a very nice thing that you can use for sequencing. It's, it originally comes from voice uh, recognition. I don't know how the yeah, model, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's the kind of technologies. So support vector machines was my-, my And what was to, the, you know, humor me as the <laughs> data literate. You want to ask what that is? Yeah, yeah but, but, but so what was the <laughs> sort of data problem that you was trying oh, to solve? Oh yeah. Uh, that's probably why, why I left uh, academia. <laughs> <laughs> There were no real interesting problems to solve. The, all the real problems are in the out in the world. Okay, yeah. uh, so this basic research uh, it was 
iterating on other studies to improve the models, increase the mm. the family, expand or current knowledge a little bit more, and you know squeeze a new algorithm out uh, and tune a few percentage points on accuracy. It was in the end, I thought it was very uh, distressing. Mm. I have to quote, you know, we've done that a number of times, you know, before in this podcast, but uh, there is this famous person called Jeremy, called Jeremy Howard, and he's the founder of um, Fast AI and also was the president of Kaggle before. Mm. And he made this quote um, asking about, you know, um, what is the impact of, or, you know, what is the, the academic research in deep learning? And he said, the uh, research in deep learning today is a complete waste of time. <laughs> And, and if we try to uh, unpack that a bit and just talk a bit more of what he said, it, it's basically that exactly what you said, which is that a lot of the academic research today, especially in machine learning and deep learning, is about trying to have half a percentage point higher for some ex, uh, existing academic data set oh. that is completely you know, cleaned up and perfect in some ways. And you just tune it in a way that is not, you know, of practical use in any way. There are other problems you should really look into. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the challenge, if you go into like um, the commercial market, okay, so you can win in two ways. Either you are first with a product yeah. or you are the best in the product, then, uh, or you can be cheap also in a commercial. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's the way you win market shares. But in research, it's either you are first with something and you complete a new idea, but then you have the fight against the whole community that this is a new idea. It's not how we used to do things. <laughs> how do you get acceptance for new science that never done before? It's like, yeah. So it's hard to prove that and, and get acknowledged for that. So it's so much more resistance to go and fine tune and tweak something that already works. That's much easier. Yeah. But... I think here, uh, just a, a little bit of a rabbit hole here. Mm. We, all, we, we all have, uh, we also have referred to Andrew Ng in, yeah. in this context, which, which is sort of a little, little bit like in my, uh, Doe told you so moment, you know, but because he's an, uh, an AI professor and he's a uh, really well renowned and he starts mm. talking about data centric or what's his word? Data centric. Data centric versus model centric. Yeah. Data centric versus model centric. And where he sort of says, from his angle, well, there's so much better ways to improve the accuracy or the performance or actually improve the use case outcome by working on other topics and use parametric tuning of the, of the model. And I think this is from another angle when you go out in the real dirty world, uh, which I really think is on the same core message here that, you know, to, to master data and AI to, and to get to a, a use case in production, uh, you know, you know, there's so many more things that is useful to do than to super tune one percentage yeah. point on the model. So I wish the academia could then study those topics and be mastering the surrounding petals of the core AI problem. Mm. Would you agree? Because I think that's yeah. the problem right now. We're getting into other topics of organization, change, data. To be honest, I haven't thought about much about it, uh, but I don't. Uh, it's hard to argue that you should put a lot of research money on, on machine learning and so on in academia because there is now a commercial drive to build models. If there is an interest to build open uh, frameworks and so on, and you're afraid that commercial industry will build models and frameworks that are pr proprietary and protected and will hinder further innovation, of course, then it should be 
probably. But um, but this is another argument yeah. we've also had yeah, yeah. that the whole industry is leading rather than academia. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the most of the modeling framework, they they are not coming from academia. No. I mean, maybe they. At nope. some point, but but no. they got traction. Uh, that because is already established here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we have established this. We speak about the AI divide, you know, time and time again, yeah, all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But it's, but but what you're saying, you're coming it from a different angle now. I, I find that mm. quite refreshing. We're talking about the same topics, the AI divide, mm. but you're also saying, why should academia then put effort into this when the business is already doing it? And then yes, maybe they should if. It's about safeguarding yeah. openness and stuff like that. Mm. But then it can be a consortium instead or something. Huh? Yeah. So and maybe that is academic, I don't know. But what I... But that, that has profound implication. How should we, should we look at, you know, VASP and everything we do in Sweden in terms of putting AI? What 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 is AI research that is useful then? I mean, like consortium, maybe that is closer to the business. So that is very useful versus academia and all that. But the whole landscape takes a turn... Hmm. And when, when you, if you open up that hypothesis. Yeah. I but find it I'm refreshing. Not, I'm not going to argue. I find it refreshing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I, I may be provocative, but no, I, like as it. coming from academia, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to move away money from academia. I don't say that. I just say it, that's not the way I would argue is the best way. You can do it, but I wouldn't uh, recommend it based on what I see, but I don't have the full picture. Uh, but, uh, but let me just try to, to see what you mean, mm. because, you know, I think it's a bit of a shame personally that mm. academia has lost a lot of, you know, really talented people to industry. And, you know, they are buying out professors and PhD students uh, time and time again. And, um, and I think I wish there were a clear role for academia in research, in AI and biology, perhaps. Um, but I, I, I think it, it's it's going in, in a bit of a wrong direction right yeah. now. So, so do you agree that academia no, no. should let, have let, a role? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But not about researching AI per se, because okay. I think that will happen naturally anyhow in the society. What can research can do is applying AI as you we mean, do in the commercial in industry. industry. Yeah. yeah, they can apply academia can apply AI to academic problems mm. like how does we more efficiently uh, diagnose a, a certain disease, for instance. That is an AI can do. They can analyze more data points, finding patterns that a human cannot see. That is a typical research thing that can academic can. Uh, so but it's not so much about developing the AI feel as per se and, and spend uh, X amount of dollars on just that AI. So, so that's not if I understand it correctly, I mean, for one, you can take like, we just want to have better AI models in general versus yeah. applications of AI in biology and or in medicine or in yeah, economics or, or in or, whatever. Or, or even in, in, in governmental control or steering or advising or, or in, in public sector. I think mm. you can use a lot of there. I mean, that would probably be a perfect place, place for AI to research for, for, for public so sector because that will not be driven by commercial. I actually like this. Mm. I, I, what do you... But, but I don't. Uh, I agree, of course, uh, and I wish <laughs> that would be the case. But but it also, in my mind at least, it it would be partly driven by industry and public sector, wouldn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, but but, uh, but what, what is really the difference? You know, what, what should really academia focus on, and what should public sector and and the industry focus on when it comes to research in general? Do you have any thoughts about that? You know, what, what is the best place for academia versus? 
Uh, academia's uh, absolute best thing is to educate people and train them and get them uh, mm. really good at something. But no research then, you mean? Or Of course, research is important. We need yeah. to solve a lot of things. I don't think the climate research, for instance, would have been driven by the commercial sector. Right. I mean, that's a super good example where academia plays a super good role. Mm. Um, so don't take me wrong. I don't think it's, they shouldn't do any research in academia. I, it is, I'm just thinking about traditional AI problems that I come from, think of. I don't say that academia would do better. I, I mean, I can think of if I have a half important model concept that I want to try, I can give that away to an academia and try that for like six or months or five years as a PhD or something and see if something out. But I don't have that patient to look if it actually flies and it has the value it, I, I hoped it had in the end. I need to have like this more rapid uh, pivoting, testing, hypothesis testing, didn't work, no, test something new, test different. You need to move fast. It's You can't have this tempo that uh, is so um, so easy to end up in, in academia. But let, let, let me try to summarize what I heard. Maybe mm. I heard something different here <laughs> because I heard it like very, first of all, we, we are talking narrow about research, academia research in relation to hardcore AI models or frameworks. And here is a little bit like the hypothesis that you're putting forward is that it's moving so extremely fast now with so huge money and resource team behind it from uh, for instance, uh, the big tech giants and all that. So to do head-to-head -head type, you know, research against what they're doing is not really adding so much value. But as soon as you basically say, like, we're going to maximize the use of what the big tech giants are doing and their open frameworks, what, yada, yada, yada. But our main AI research will be how to cross-pollinate the intersectional innovation between the core AI research and these applications, whatever they are, that we want to foster and drive as part of the Swedish economy. Uh, yeah. Do you uh, see what I mean? Yeah, so, I think. So uh, you're uh, saying, why do our research department try to go head-to-head -head with Google? Yeah. You already lost that game 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So why don't you pivot just a little bit and you work on applied AI yes, together with your sense. peers in another department? Yeah, uh, that's, that I can resonate with. I, uh, that, I, that, well, that is what I heard. That yes, is how yes, I and that's probably, it. I haven't thought about this before. Uh, so you helped me reasoning here. <laughs> but that's, that's, uh, that's how I think. I think, you know, AI should be a part of any kind of field mm. yes. when it comes to any kind of science yes, that we I have agree. in university. So that I certainly agree with. But mm. there is also, I would say, a need for AI research in computer science, for example. Yeah. Uh, and having like pure AI research being performed by academia as well. The problem is, of course, that they are being, you know, uh, drained or extracted mm -hmm. from academia into industry. But but if we are still uh, were to try to find a place, you know, their ac academia had a, a role that is hard for industry to take. I mean, one argument would be like basic research in general, long term, you know, mm -hmm. five years PhD studies is, mm -hmm. you know, you can of course do that in industry as well. And, and many do. And I, I don't know, it's a super hard argument for me. I, don't, I hope we could find a clear place where academia would find a role also from a pure AI point of view when it comes to research. But I, 
But I, 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 this is a hard one because a little bit, if you can't beat them, join them and work mm. in, in yeah. symbiotic yeah. relationship with them. Yeah. And this, well, what is, what is the symbiotic relationship with, between our uh, academic institutions and, and the people that are seriously 10 yeah. years ahead. But also if we take, you know, in the US, yes, in, in China, yes. But potentially in Sweden, I think, you know, the universities are rather good in Sweden mm. and, and uh, industry, unfortunately, not as much. Mm. So perhaps there's a bigger need and we have rather good universities in Sweden. So there is a clear role, I would argue, mm. to have both like pure AI research and also applied AI research in academia in Sweden. Would you agree with that at least? Or Yeah, yeah, uh, I think so. Absolutely. Mm. I don't, wouldn't no, argue no. against, maybe I've done it during the talk here, but yes, I, I, I don't yeah. disagree with you. No, so I, I think it's about the pivot of their mission and purpose, not not about shutting down, yeah, but putting but down the Yeah, I understand something. Not, not it's, shutting it's, down, but, but it's just, you know, in US it's really hard because, you know, the, the biggest, the best way you can do research in, in US is is one of the tech giants. Yeah. Okay, so so if you're living in Sweden and you want to be on the cutting edge, mm. you don't have a tech giant in Sweden. Okay, no. you can mm -hmm. you can then try to work with, with that. But, but, I, I, I agree with that, but can someone work in an institution and in research today, like in Sweden, and not and to do anything value or of relevance without keeping their eye to the ground or the ear to the ground on what the big tech giants are doing? Can, can no, you do it in isolation? Not in AI, of course, but, not but in, in, in Sweden, I think, you know, for long-term research, I think academia still have a good place yeah. to yeah, have. Yeah. You have right the whole now. RISE Institute in, yes. in Sweden, which is an excellent uh, collection of people that tries to figure out the Swedish society, how it will look like and how it will impact and what current research is indicating and put the research in place that is lacking in order for us to be a competitive country going forward. I don't know if they have the ambitions, that's how I, I interpret mm -hmm. they, they would uh, uh, justify themselves. Yes. Uh, I mean, I think that's that's a great example of, you know, what you want to do to try to, to make the, the research that Rice is doing a bit more applicable, but but that's like circumventing the, the real problem. And the yeah. real problem is that universities are struggling to find a place. Yeah. Yes. And and we st I think that there is a place, and I wish we could make an even stronger case for what the place for academia and universities in Sweden should be. Yes, I agree yeah. with you. Right? Yeah. So it's definitely needed. It's a key component of how we bring Sweden forward, but how to do it in the context of all the components of the world and what the tech giants are doing. You cannot, you cannot build an institutional strategy for AI research in isolation from what the tech giants are doing. That's, I think, uh, can, can we argue, can agree on that? Yeah. 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 Uh, perhaps we're going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's rabbit hole. <laughs> but let me then take you us back a little bit. Yeah. So we, we, we ended up to have a major theme around PhD <laughs> in academic research and the, and the path for academic research, which I think was fantastic. But it, what, what happens, you know, when, when did you move out of academia? Why uh, well, did you move out of academia? You know, the, the final years there at the university, you think about how do I get out of this? I mean, you, you want, you want a title, you want to show for the world that you actually yes. com, uh, managed to go through. But you were it. not long-term seeking an academic No, career. no, I mean, I mean, I had fantastic friends that did it and I helped them and I, uh, I support them and so on but I couldn't find this future for myself looking for uh, grants, S applying for grants exactly in order to get my salary. Well, and, and yeah, yeah, that is, I don't want, I want to go somewhere that I can do instant uh, impact and have produce value at once. And I say, and that I've found in the industry. So uh, yeah, I, 
I contacted one old friend um, uh, that worked at AstraZeneca and said, yeah, I'm going to go on maternity leave though. So maybe you can be a temporary employee mm -hmm. here. And I got in there and that's it. I had fantastic uh, team there over at AstraZeneca. I was done in Mandal after about... And what, and what year was this approximately? 2008. Yeah. Uh, I so went, right after the PhD and yeah, I was uh, one week in Thailand between <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> one week in Thailand, yeah. and then back. <laughs> uh, and it was an amazing team of talented persons, uh, lots of good leadership around uh, data and and uh, informatics, as we call it, that biomedical informatics was called the team. But so we worked with clinical data and 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 and, and some preclinical data. So, uh, but clinical means that data based on humans. Uh, in pharmaceutical industry, you also start with data on animals, or in, and then before that, you just use data on, on, on labs and tubes. So here we, we are going down the process. <laughs> yeah, where, yeah. And we have so, learned yeah, but this trial, was like sort of the, one, one, of the, one of the last steps there. So uh, and that was so fun uh, to work there. We I learned new models and new algorithms. I have fantastic people to learn from. Uh, after a year or something, I moved up to Södertälje uh, and and Snekvik and there and and. A research site there, moved to another disease area. That was there. I was completely alone in what we now now they call a data scientist. I would call a uh, bioinformaticians or no, okay. a biomedical informatician or something like that. But it was a data scientist. I was that. But you weren't I, working in a group of no, data no. I was. I belonged to the statistics, the oh, biostatistics, yeah. and they were very pure. You know, on their science, they were like that algorithm guy there. <laughs> <laughs> he has no theory of what he's doing. It's, it's like the, the, you know, the statistics yeah, guy. Yeah. yeah. So they. So I had like the only way I was accepted because I had a track record over at Mandal. They said this guy Anders is he's amazing, or something like that. I may be bragging, but I, I, that's why I got mm. the, the role. They didn't know why I actually could do it, uh, but they know that he needed something. So what, tell us a little bit. About, what is the contrast, the difference? What you come in now with algorithms versus. The statistical so, team. Uh, what is the difference that you're experiencing now? Statistical uh, stat statisticians. There are a few, but most of them are there to confirm a hypothesis. Okay, they they postulate something. This drug is better. A A drug is better than drug B. Okay, mm. that's a hypothesis, and then you try to prove that. Look at the data and use the statistics to prove it. Mm -hmm. So you always look for confirmation or deferral. While uh, a data scientist back then, uh, as an information, we looked for patterns that could explain things. Why was drug B better than drug A or something? What was, why was it because they used different populations, there wasn't and so on. So we looked at all the different kinds and used machine learning to find patterns that statisticians couldn't find because they were using single dimensional data, you know, or models. Set tests. Yes, yeah. Tests and, 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 and all that, yeah. yeah. Uh, and control for all the statistical correctness you know, yeah. ever could think of in the best way to maintain the most uh, interpretable power, whatever you call it, yeah. They were super skilled in that, but they weren't skilled in finding patterns and so on. So that were... So you actually, this is actually two different problems you yeah, were working it was. on solving. So gradually I built up the knowledge in, in, in Sertelli about this and, and and built up a small team there and got acceptance and so on. Eventually, I was moved into the global group there uh, and got another fantastic uh, uh, leader that uh, was a former colleague to me, James Weatherall, an awesome guy that is sort of my uh, what I wanted to be when I was like back in the I mean, He was this ground-to-earth, uh, fantastic guy, fun, mm -hmm. super skilled, 
super efficient. He could like run a meeting with five people, 150 people, and still doing like notes and jokes. And like when he's done, it has like everything packaged as like a perfect document <laughs> describing whatever we did. So it was not like this, uh, yeah, can you clean this notes for me or something <laughs> like that? It was never. He was, and it was like this digital way of working was native to him long before we had stuff like Teams or something. It was like, we do this here, then everyone can edit the document at the same time. And during and during a video presentation or something, we, we edited the same document. That was 20 years ago. I don't know, maybe, yeah, I mean, almost 20 10 years ago. 10 years, 10, 10, 10, 10, 15 years, yeah. yeah. It was not so much heard of back then. Uh, yeah. and, and that I thought was great to see a leader that could master all of it. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Uh, so that was fantastic. Um, yeah, I stayed at AstraZeneca many years, did a lot of things, but in the end, they uh, shut down the research there. Right. Yes. So then you have that to think 2016 about... 2016 or 15? Uh, 12, or the decision came maybe 11, uh, but 12 was when I exited. Oh, really? I uh, stopped after, I left after six months or something. Okay. Um, but yeah, if you, you know, as I told you before, I had this idea about my career. This I'm at the perfect spot. I did a good career. I reached like the level... We had this role of principal scientist or something like that. Someone that has super much influence on decisions and in uh, and what you should know or what you should. Uh, that that was the career yeah. path. Yeah, that's like I was at that position. I, I could like acknowledge for your skills and experience, but you have no accountability. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, ah, yeah, this must be perfect to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but then you had to think about what. And, ha and what happened then in 2012? Yeah. Uh, so, 15 years of our research that didn't result in anything. <laughs> uh, we were really bad positioned generally in the industry, not just AstraZeneca. There were very, very few good drugs that were candidates to actually to cure new diseases. And what, what the authorities were doing is they're putting more regulations. We talked about mm -hmm. this before, more regulations, yeah. making it more expensive to do drug development and reach market. So I saw a, a very pessimistic uh, time there. So I thought maybe I should leave the, the industry. The industry. I didn't, I, I really didn't believe we were successful or maybe there were a few that became successful, but I was very pessimistic. Maybe we shouldn't have, we could have more new drugs on the market that was approved by authorities. So and this is 2012. Has yeah. it changed? You think? Yes, it has changed. And, and probably why I, uh, when I left, they figured it out. <laughs> so now they're successful. They're <laughs> no launching much. And I just, no look at, just look at COVID vaccine. I mean, that's yeah. just amazing. Uh, so these, uh, I'm very, very happy for them. And, and if I would maintain all my, my, my shares in AstraZeneca, I would be super rich right by, by now. <laughs> I didn't. So yeah, that was a wrong bet. But personally, it was not uh, wrong because what I thought about and had to force about, what is it that makes you tick? Okay, what, yeah. what, what makes you go with work with a smile and what, what are they? And I thought, was it really that I was developing drugs for diseases or patients or something? No, it wasn't. That could be altruistic or something. Uh, was it that I uh, worked, was really good in biomedicine? No, it wasn't. It was to convert value out of data. Okay. Mm -hmm. And applying all my experience, run processing, analyzing and drawing insights and visualizing data and building models. That's what triggered me. So when I thought about it, which different sectors have data? <laughs> <laughs> and there was a job fair over at back then. Uh, they invited, you know, companies to recruit these all 
1,000 scientists and, and, and highly educated persons. Uh, and uh, so you went, I went out there, uh, around there, and of course, where you, those that were more, uh, well, it was most strategically, but uh, I was at SS, SCB and looking at and, and so on. Didn't really like the culture or the things that I was tossing in that team. I had a few uh, contractor uh, consultancy companies that sound kind of nice. And I thought as a career move, learning new industries, moving into a consultancy business or like, is a perfect because you're exposed to different sectors uh, naturally. So I did that uh, three years at Capgemini um, and trying to... As a way I, also to try out different industries. Yeah, I, I took that as an investment. I was literally going horizontal career-wise. It was like nothing happened. Uh, I didn't almost didn't get any assignments that was exciting at all. Uh, because this was quite early. They were this hype curve of big data. I was out speaking to clients about big data, but did they invest in a big data pilot? No. No. It took me like two and a half year. And the first that actually wanted to do a pilot on big data was Telenor Connection. Interesting. Mm. And uh, I did that together with a colleague for a summer and we were supposed to prove two things um, and I proved three and they were sold. So a few months later, they came back with an RFQ on a big data real-time platform uh, asking different vendors to suggest a project to build that. And uh, so I designed that platform and we won uh, as a... Uh, that um, tender. Gig, yeah, tender. And, and mm -hmm. in, uh, in February, we started to build. And back then, I don't know any kind of company that actually had big data platforms in production, but maybe like companies like, um, uh, yeah, Spotify and so on. But, but none of these traditional businesses actually had, there were lots and lots this of pilots. 2012, right? Yeah, there were lots and lots of pilots there. Yeah, TLA is quite early, but but it's not that I many. was at TLA just before that, so I know exactly where Same they were. Way. And they were, they had started, but they did, they, I had so many questions. Uh, maybe I don't, can talk about this, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> main argument, maybe it wasn't from TLA, maybe it was from my colleagues at Capgemini talking to the, the client at TLA, but why should we go to the cloud? Why don't we buy more of this super expensive uh, database vendor? And I was uh, trying to explain this, you know, okay, well, your data will grow. Uh, you will grow out your systems faster than you can order servers. And then you need to pay license on the service and you need to have IT configured. We don't have the time. We will have streaming data coming in. We will need to process and we will go for cloud. We don't have, and the thing was with the teleconnection, we didn't have the legacy. Oh, yeah. uh, I recognize this. Yes. So that's maybe, I, I can maybe, I'm, there's many things about my journey at Teleconnection that I cannot see at many other places. Mm. Maybe that's where I picked it. <laughs> but, uh, because you could come in quite fresh. Yes, yes. so Teleconnection, maybe you could come in a little bit to that, but Teleconnection uh, was invented somewhere 20 years ago uh, as the business thing around roaming, uh, global roaming with SIM cards. Uh, and Telenor Connection or Telenor that back then built the world's first uh, management platform for global connectivity SIM cards. It's called M2M platform, uh, which was a massive thing. We built it together with uh, Very Shore and Volvo Cars and so on as pilot customers. Scania were all of these very early on. That's why they're so good at this at this point. We started all this together when 
German car makers were not even um, thinking about it. I don't know. No, I, can't I mean, like Scania is one of the earliest yes. with, uh, with real IoT in, in, in the modern sense, so to yes, speak. Yes, yes. And found a number of co- uh, good business models on, on top of it. So, yeah. Uh, but back then we built this huge platform, a telco platform for provisioning SIM cards and managing their roaming profiles and all this and sending invoices. And we were like, we were like maybe 60 persons and <laughs> back then. <laughs> so, so much fun. Yeah. So, uh, and what was Ericsson doing? Yeah. They were outsourcing and re- re- like doing operational stuff for telcos all over the world. So yeah, let's sell this to them and buy it back as a service because we are not good at operating this. We so had you to build, you, you we built had to build something it. and you, you yeah. need a home for this and went to Ericsson. Yeah. So we had, we had, it wasn't, doesn't, it didn't exist. So we had to build it, but we don't couldn't operate it, so we sold it and bought it back as a service. So now, you know, Telia is running on the same platform, Swiss Telecom, China Telecom. From, er- from Ericsson? Yes, yes. But you, you, you built it. Yes. Now it's, of course, something completely different, but it's, uh, we have always had a head start on the platform. We are the biggest, I would argue, uh, at least in Europe, the biggest operator on that platform. And we are probably those that drive uh, the requirements on that and, platform. And, and this platform, what is the main sort of the core business problem? Is that roaming and handling SIM? You know, what 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 is it that is the, the, the platform does? Uh, there is a, uh, well, the it's... The core. Yeah, so it has a core. So like the da- database of the SIMs. But then uh, the difference with... A traditional uh, business to consumer is that each subscription is attached to a person. So the person is managing the subscription itself mm. or the company, if you have business card, but still persons and you, 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 on behalf of that person, the company is renewing or paying mm. invoices or changing the, the agreements or something, but that's humans. But when you go to machines, uh, you need to orchestrate this for not for just individual persons. You need to do this for many, many millions of exactly the same type of machines. Like, for instance, many trucks in yeah, Scania. So, yeah, so, so I would say that if, if you take Scania, I, would, I haven't looked into their setup recently, but I would say that they maybe have something, 10, 15 subscription packages. In the subscription package, there are subscriptions. So all the man- models of one manufacturer, or like one truck mm-hmm. that has the same modem, goes to the same market. They are configured in a subscription package. So what, all you need to do is changing on the package level and all the subscriptions get the, uh, the configuration uh, needed. needed. Yeah. So that's one way it solves it, which would not be really the same uh, in, in other. Then you can, ah, what more? It, it's, it's not a, uh, a very rocket kind of, platform, there are multi, uh, multiple alternatives right now out on the market, but it was one of the first, first and it's, it, you don't really move out of platforms like that. So it's, it's a good model. It's a good platform, but it's, um, it's not rocket science. It's probably rather outdated by now in terms of like REST APIs and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's some old soaps and stuff uh, mm-hmm. and they are XML. progressing on that. Yeah. XML. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, the platform itself is good, uh, but there are other things that we actually bring to the table. And that is that the customer just wants one invoice. One place to order SIM cards. So if you are Scania and you ship to Brazil, you ship to US, you ship to Spain, you ship to Germany, you don't go and buy local SIM cards and all this and manage that. That's completely impossible to manage over time. So now you can buy one SIM card that works in all places 
you get good prices because we are have a good global footprint so we can negotiate on behalf of you and you can control this and in a massive scale and uh, in the end you just have one partner that you negotiate with and you have one that you pay the invoice to so become like a sim card broker in some way yes. to different markets and what we sold one more thing we manufacture the sim card and we send it to your uh, manufacturing uh, facility so you can mount the sim card exactly at the time that you mount the sim the modem into the truck and so, so you can do it as part of the production so, value yeah, chain yeah exactly so that's uh, in short but what can you, you go i mean mm. this is obviously is a it's a big platform a lot of data and it needs to be real time mm. as well uh, can you perhaps elaborate a bit more on what are the top challenges from a more technical point of view in making such a platform work? So, um, I, uh, if if we could we speak about the big data platform that we have at Telenor Connection that we are using, and not sure. the platform that Ericsson is sure. that we are using, sure. because I don't know how that actually is working behind the APIs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, uh, as uh, a global ma- global connectivity managed provider, what you need to do is, of course, you need to be better than your c- competitors. Mm. Uh, so how do you do that? You have uh, uh, you can have better coverage, but mostly it's price, okay, and yes. and uh, or quality and quality of services. So you need access. And what we do, we collect shitloads of data and analyze that and make sure that we are on top of all decisions to make sure that we always negotiate with the best operators, make sure that they have, that our customers always have access to the markets. Because that is the problem that they have. If they could do that themselves, it will take them tons of time and they don't have the negotiation power. Mm. Telenor Group has... Uh, you know, operators in Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and lots of many parts of, of Asia. That is something we can bring to the table. Scania would say, yeah, what can you offer for us? Nothing. You can offer, you, you want to buy data from us? Yes, you can buy it. But you, you don't bring anything more to the table. If you have something that we can negotiate, we can, we can give, uh, for instance, uh, Orange the whole Nordic market mm. as if we get access to right. their market. Okay. So that's how it works. But but what is the what, what what is the core? I mean, like the journey for the big data platform as tele, uh, Telenor Connection. Where, where did that start? Or it's, you know, oh yes, this is interesting. And, and, and uh, you know, what was the original founding so, ideas for so it? So if we go back to this, when I told you, uh, there were no real production uh, big data platforms back then. Uh, maybe there were, but I didn't know about it. And I, I knew a lot back yeah. then because uh, I met a lot of uh, different companies, uh, but. There was this killer use case, okay? The the, the, the one, the, the pain, the pain. I, you, as a management contractor, you want never want to sell on pain, but that was what got us going, okay? Uh, it's something called a signaling storm. What signaling? Signaling storm or tsunami in in, in, a, in the yeah. in the world of telecoms. What is that? So uh, if you thought, think about um, uh, Terminator movies like the Skynet. Yes. Okay. Murder robbers. T eight hundred. AI controlled by Skynet. They go out in the world and kill humans because they are the ones that gonna <laughs> pull Skynet uh, the, the, uh, pull the plug out of Skynet and so on. Okay, that's a bit scary. But that's not really what happens in in the IoT world. It's rather the movie your minions. Yeah. Yeah. The minions. The kids. You know. The, 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 the yellow, uh, yellow minions. Uh, yeah. Mm. You know, Duma May. Yeah, Duma May, yes. I've never yeah. seen any kids move. No, so okay, sorry. no, sorry. But there is a, there's like a, a, <laughs> I have. a sort of a semi-kind evil villain. Mm. And he's followed by very dumb figures. Okay. They're yellow and small. 
This is how the IoT devices are. They are super many, but they are done. And if they figure out to do something, uh, if one or few, you know, figure out to do something uh, that is bad, everyone does the same thing. So the massive scale of small events causes a huge bad impact. <clears throat> so this is what happens if something goes down. Then 20 million machines out in the world doesn't have connectivity. So everything gets silent. When it gets back on, everyone wants to join and connect. <clears throat> and then everything is throttled everywhere. This is the tsunami or the single storm. Yes. So both in terms of when it crashes, it crashes bad because everything crashes. Yes. So the cra everything crashes, everything breaks every time, uh, always, and at some point. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and when it happens, how fast can you recover? And then the, one of the problems is actually they are, will create congestion because everybody at the same time wants yes. to get, do the handshake. So if it would be humans, you would be tired. You would not restart your uh, phone more than like 10 times. I don't know. How <laughs> but this one. Yeah, I know. You, you, you're physically exhausted. But something that is has a programming code, every time you fail to connect, you retry. It can go on as long as it's battery. And most of this stuff, you know, have, have a petrol, you know, you can, or plugged in the wall. You know, this, but if you're battery, you die after some time. But all the rest, they just kept on hammering. And this, back then, we didn't have no idea how their customer, our customers' devices were operating. So they were, every time they failed, or not always, but many of them, every time they failed, they retried. And it could be milliseconds or seconds. So then everyone that actually was, there were very few that actually came through back to the home database, the HLR, to actually get approval to attach. So everyone failed because everyone was got stuck in the doorway, in. And they retry. So we actually, uh, Telenor Connection, together with the uh, GSMA, uh, which are um, the Global Standard Mobile Association or something, we came up with this guideline that is now uh, best practice, where you actually have to adopt a certain algorithm on board. So every time you fail, you need to wait X amounts of time. Uh, and then if you try, you can try again. And if you fail, you need to double the time plus some random. And then if you so fail three, you do, do three. So it's a back-off algorithm, okay? Yes, we didn't invent it, but we, we formulated it for the IoT use case mm -hmm. of OCBIT. And what happens then is that there are fewer pers uh, devices that tries to go through the door, so eventually some are let in, and then the overall load goes down, and everyone is let in. And this now actually goes faster if some of them backs off rather than everyone hammers all the time. Of course, yeah. So this is... I guess similar to when you order tickets back in a few days, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. years Going ago. Going to yeah. the YouTube concert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so this was our problem. And uh, back in 2014, that ha this happened twice. And it was our customers actually that caused, I mean, I'm sure if I can tell this, but <laughs> uh, it was one of our customers that uh, was causing this. And the Telenor Sweden network, not, not just our service, the whole, every subscriber in Sweden for Telenor, was out of service for two days, 48 hours. This is a big blackout. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> and it turned out that it was one of our customers and they have fixed this now, so it's super good. But that, we were completely blind. We didn't know who were the customers were causing this. We just know that it was bad. So what we invested was the collection of the data of the control plane. This tries to attach to the network, the, the, the request to attach, and the request to attach to a data session, and the determination, the, all these small control plane events, that was what we invested in, in collecting in real time. So this is a real time 
data platform from, from the absolute yes. beginning. So this is interesting. I had a speak at a conference um, many years ago that actually reflected. We didn't start with business intelligence, moved no. into analytics, moved into machine learning and then AI. We started with, uh, and then moved into real time or something like that. Yeah. We actually started with real, real time and as a consequence of having shitloads of data in real time, we also got big data. Yeah. Uh, and on top of the big data, why should we try to build business intelligence on, on numbers that people made up in Excel Now we actually have the actual events and could build business intelligence on top of the actual event le- level on the big data platform? Yeah. So that's, we turned it a little bit around. It wasn't a thought about it. It was a way to solve and uh, deliver business value. So your evolution came from the core event rather yes, than from another yes, angle. Yeah. So we always had real-time data. So what do you mean, how do you fix the problem that was causing like 48-hour blackout? Um, was it like rate limiting a certain type of uh, uh, requests or what was the solution? Um, it doesn't really solve the problem. Uh, there is rate limits, of course, but now you have to work with the customers. You need to have good collaboration. And now what we do is that we, we sign a contract with them. They have to. And if not, we are entitled to terminate their SIM card. Oh, really? And we kill it. We don't just pause the subscription, we write over the identifier, we write zero, 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 zero. So if you use that, it can be root, cannot be rooted to us. Really? Yeah. So and, and, and as a way to, when you get in the, in the signal storm yeah. to basically get SIM cards to back off. Yeah. They will go nowhere. So if they are yeah. now roaming in, in Poland or something, if it has a zero, zero, zero identifier, it cannot be rooted to us. So the Polish operator will not send it anywhere. They will just throw it away. So What's some power yet you have? Yeah. Uh, however, we are. I don't think we have ever done that to terminate the customer sim. We actually talk to them first, and they update their firmware and fix this problem. So typically, there's something that happens in one customer's firmware which mm. has nothing to do with with the whole system that causes an uh, an event storm, an event yeah. chain. Yeah. So this is interesting because you only see this problem when there is a disturbance. Mm. When, under normal operations, this is not a problem. No, I, I feel to uh, I recognize this problem. You know, whenever the system is working perfectly, you're doing the right job. Mm. But whenever s- shit hits the storm, you get blamed for it. Yes, I I, I recognize this for some reason. <laughs> it's same in job, you know. <laughs> could, could you speak? You know, for people that are a bit tech oriented, you know, how yeah. do you handle a billion events per day? Yeah, can you? You know, what, yeah. what kind of tech stack do you have? Uh, yeah. So, touching back on that, we didn't have any legacy. Okay. No. So, where do you start if you develop something? Uh, you, back in 2015, 16, you go to the cloud. And which cloud do you take? Um, well, back then... But you made a, a cloud choice in 15. This is quite early. Yes. Still, yes. I would argue. Yeah, the, the, well, that was one corporate. of the hypotheses that I tested. Was AWS the right cloud for, for addressing that? Or would it work for mm-hmm. addressing our... Uh, and it, it, it did. Uh, so yeah, 2016 was when we started. No, 2000, yeah, 2014 actually, sorry. 2015 when we... Started to build our production system. We that was in February. In June, end of June, we launched it into production. Really, and went live. That sounds too good to be true. It did, and I was so proud of this. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 let's because I realized that I mean, AWS is a huge tech stack. So let's go yeah. into a little yeah, detail. Yeah. So uh, first of all, these. The control plane events uh, is something that we fetch from the core backend of Telco stack. Those are streamed up to 
AWS in the cloud. S3 bucket or something. No, like no, 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 no. It's a TCP IP binary stream. Okay. We don't, when you look at it, you don't see the start and stop of any record. Okay, so if it's pure yeah, event. Yeah, so if I rem don't know how deep I should go here, but, yeah, but please, have very go nerdy. Ah, okay, no, okay. we want to go nerdy. Okay. We've so, been missing the nerdy bit. Okay, pieces. yes, okay. So go, go. So uh, what happens first is that uh, this TCP IP stream that contains the binary encoded records of all the probes, the, the samples of the events, those are streamed. They are streamed to a single EC2. Uh, a server where Machine, it's, yeah. it's where there's a Java application just listening to the chunking this in real time, just a CPU uh, more or less that shops up and listens to the start and stop of any record. But you can you can at least recognize the TCP headers and stuff, right? Or you must this, yes. no, yeah. Uh, we look at no, it's just a binary sequence of records. We look for the the record definition of a start, so the hexadecimal code. We're eating bites or... or, or yeah, yeah. But, but at least, I mean, otherwise, and it's go, going over the internet, so you have to have T TCP headers at least that you can... But it's a socket stream. Oh, it's a socket stream over TCP. Okay, so you look at directly at the socket stream. Oh, you then. can't have the overhead oh. of HTTP headers and stuff like that. Uh -huh. No, no, this yeah. is a TCP. So it's, it's a binary stream. Okay. Socket based. So that's why we, that we the probe listener, as we call it, but the probes are. By the way, what's the, the difference? So the header you go you go on high high level, or you go more binary. Could uh, you explain no, it? No, no. A, a socket you stream data. It's like send, like if you stream a movie, you don't do HTTP requests saying REST API calls for every single frame. No. No. Okay, that won't work. So you stream it through a socket. Uh, that's more or less. I, uh, I think mm -hmm. it's still TCP package, but it is. Yeah, 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 of course it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 So there's handshake of every package. Yes, is, yes, of exactly. course. Yes. So that's that's true. But it's um, not a new HTTP request. It's, it's a single HTTP request. Yes, it's just streamed yes, over yes, that. Yes. So if it goes down, it connects yes. back to the to the yeah. to the source. Yeah. So those. Uh, so we split up this binary sequence of ones and zeros into what we know is a start and stop of records. So we don't split uh, one record into. Right. Okay, then we micro batch this, and every microsecond or something, we then um, put this into a Kinesis stream. And Kinesis mm. is a, um, similar to Kafka or something, but it actually has uh, a way to process the data uh, in the other end that is very powerful. So it's uh, an Amazon version of that. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, it's, I don't know if it's a, so, so kin uh, Kafka is like event driven, but this is actually. We do batch of binaries that we put the blobs mm. in the Kinesis stream. It's not events there. When we ch uh, consume it in the other end, we have a binary decoder taking these mm. blobs and run them through a decoding step. And then we can build up something like a data structure that we can say, okay, this field here means a SIM card. This here means an operator. So what we then do is that in real time, because this is anonymized, this is sent from all the networks out in the globe. They don't have any knowledge about who, which SIM belongs to our customer or, or which they don't need to identify themselves. They just say, this is my ID. So how do we distinguish between the different IDs of operators? And there are like four or five different code systems that they identified by. So it's a massive. So what we do is that we actually, in this, uh, this is a, a Docker cluster that consumes from the Kinesis stream in real Kubernetes time. Kubernetes-based or just the... Uh, Docker. Yeah, Docker. Um, yeah, we can go into the, the engineering part of it. Uh, I'm not... Uh, it's actually a Fargate 
if I remember, which means it's actually a managed cluster. So we don't need to man- maintain the cluster itself. Mm. But it auto-scales, goes up and down. So during nighttime, it's of course less load and so on. Mm. Uh, but these decoders not only decode the binary records, it also uh, maintains an in shared in-memory uh, reference data uh, that this IMSI, for instance, because you will see this IMSI, uh, IMSI sorry, IMSI, SIM card ID for, for uh, yes. so SIM card ID belongs to this customer. You need to know that every time that comes up. So we maintain most of the, the events uh, that we need to look up in memory with a shared memory in the cluster. Mm-hmm. And those that we don't uh, can fit into the memory that are used very seldom, we uh, look up in Dynamo, DynamoDB, yes. which is a key value store that scales extremely well if you design your keys in a smart way. Right. And we've done that. So, key so, value store that yes. is optimized for Amazon's yeah. use case. So yes. at this point now, you have a, a CSV row, more or less, with the timestamp when it happened, the the thing, the type of event that happened, the record type, the, the, the customer ID, the customer name, the operator ID, operator name, etc., and error codes and stuff, stuff like that. So this is our main data. And this is now... What do we do with this? When we throw that into a second sequence of multiple streams, mm-hmm. and we're using um, uh, Kinesis streams, we're using Kinesis data analytics to do real-time aggregates on this in multiple ways. So we one is just to calculate an SLA service objects based on this. Okay, you have SLA on this as well, I guess. Yes, no? uh, not on the platform, but but for our services to our customer. But yeah. we calculate the service object based on actually monitoring the real-time data and producing... So, so this becomes your metric of if your SLA is up or down. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So we, we, we slot it down to five minutes and I collect, Did we? can we prove that a SIM card could attach to a network? Could it send data? Could it send SMS? Did it come through? And so on. So that's one way, but that's a minor use case. Then we have, uh, so we have actually six... Is it five or six different protocols that we ingest through the same TCP/IP stream? So it's actually three different, five, five six different protocols: one for data, one for two for data, two for SM, uh, one for SMS, and two for uh, attaching. It's, so two G, three G is one standard, and four G <laughs> is another standard. They are not; they behave similar, but they're completely different. So you need for for control plane one and control plane two doing data is four protocols and then we have SMS and then we have actually throughput so we can listen to how many bytes actually in a data session <laughs> down to a second level. Um, and this so is that, being, this kind of support for different protocols is being developed, uh, I guess, in-house on the uh, no, 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 this is a s- product we buy and most telecom oh. operated by this. Uh, no, it's okay. a Swedish company called Polystar. They are oh. super awesome. Uh, uh, <laughs> so they have this Built it. I mean, they are world leading on, in this business. Nice. Um, so they have the whole streaming. They produce the stream for us, more okay. or less. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so yeah, and, and is all we talked about right now, and the whole event from the start to the you know all these different levels. Mm-hmm. Is this all more or less real time, or is it when uh, does it become batch or micro batch? In this? So uh, it's not. Um, uh, the, the aggregates, uh, as soon as you start to do a real-time aggregates, it becomes micro-batches. But mm-hmm. uh, what we also do in real-time is that we we send all the events. <clears throat> no, exactly. We do real-time feature engineering. <laughs> or we, we produce the features in real-time in this case. What do you mean with features? In yeah, so if, if there's an event now, we, we construct, uh, I mean, uh, we can't do modeling on each and sing- single event or so on. But for maybe how, how does the, 
number of events for a customer look like in one country, for instance. That is a feature. Mm. So maybe how many events and how many errors. Mm. So very simple, simple features. Mm. So those we construct in real time in Chinese data analytics, and we run them through random cut forest models that are trained on the time series that are buffered in the time stream. So then we get out an anomaly score saying high or low if this combination of different features on customers or operator level is anomalous. And then we raise, put this score through a rule engine, which is just a simple lambda. And if this reaches the cutoff, we will create a new record of, uh, create an alarm in a DynamoDB record. And mm -hmm. on top of that, we have a simple web interface with a, a list of alarms which we present to our service operations center and they look okay. Aha, yeah, anomaly. Is, yeah, so the, so the, uh, the uh, what is the lambda here? Explain lambda, ah, sorry, good, good, good. A lambda, is, so if you think about servers mm -hmm. and if you are more modern, you do like Dockerized solutions like Kubernetes or Docker. Uh, <clears throat> but if you go to the next step, you just deploy the code, mm -hmm. the function. And this is a function as a service, and it's super elegant. It's serverless, and you don't even need to provision a, a cluster or, mm. uh, or an image. You just provide the code. So you say, I want to run my code as a Python or Node or Java or anything, and you just put the code in, and it will, you can have a trigger uh, to invoke the function. So serverless you're talking about. <coughs> yes. I think for people that don't, you know, it's not familiar to cloud computing, I think it would be nice to just, you know, explain mm. a bit the, mm. the, the levels of abstraction you can have. You yes, know. And, I and think yeah. this is good. For one, you know, you can have the hardware level, you know, doing nothing on the cloud and, and then having to manage all the the hardware itself, the hard drives and uh, updating the operating system and doing all that kind of work. You can abstract it away with cloud computing. Mm. So you can have them operating the hardware, and Step they will one. fix the, yeah. the hard drives when they break and everything. Infrastructure as a service, and that's that's nice in itself. But then you still have the operating systems; you need to update them all the time yeah. and fix all the security bugs coming all the time. But then you can have Docker's, and it can abstract that away. So then, great. Then you don't have to care about that. But you still have to deploy the application in itself, and you need to continuously update that. But then you can abstract that away as well, <laughs> and just go from the application to the function as well. And then you come to the serverless kind of abstraction that you're speaking about, yes. which Lambda or Google yeah. Cloud, Google cloud has, functions. Google have functions. Yeah, Google cloud functions. Is Lambda is the AWS speech, speak lingo for this. Lambda is the serverless kind of architecture, yes. yes, so, yes. so you yeah. don't have to care about the deploying the application. Yeah. So you don't need like to maintain operation, op service, you don't need to maintain uh, operating systems, you don't need to uh, maintain the runtime environment. Yeah. You just put the function in. So these are super good for small, um, short-living uh, functions like processing event. So for a rule engine invoked, every time there is an output from the Chinese uh, data analytics of a feature, Calculated with an anomaly score, we look. It is thrown to the lambda, and lambda says, "Okay, is this score high enough to create uh, uh, something to tell the business about? If not, throw it away." And I think, I think, yeah, sure. I think this is quite important also because all these different when when to be on different abstractions, what to use. I mean, like a core topic is to reflect a little bit. Yeah, is that. You really need to know your data problem quite well to select uh, what, you know, when do I new, new, use the Dynamo? When do I do yes. a Lambda and all that? 
And we and have done so many mistakes during these six <laughs> years. Uh, uh, we are actually now on our third generation big data platform. Yeah. So I over this, year, so the first one was super dumb <laughs> in many senses, uh, except the streaming part that I described initially. This um, up until the decoding, that is more or less, uh, yeah, it's a little bit more advanced. We, we re-engineered it last year, but it's pretty much the same design. But most of the other things we have evolved over the time and changed uh, and and I have lots of reflections on but, those parts of it. But this is profound because mm. now I have an hypothesis because I've seen organizations that start on big data projects and they sort of almost go dogmatic on their original ideas and architectures too soon. And it's a little bit like, no, we can't do it like this because that's not the architecture we, we chosen. And what you are saying now is that in six years, it's actually your third iteration yes. of the same stuff. And yeah. would you say that this fundamental way of working that your, your big data platform <clears throat> cannot stand still in a freeze moment, it becomes obsolete immediately. Yeah. So it's, there's a combination of things. Big data is costly, especially if you do it wrong. <laughs> but if there's- <laughs> That should be another t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> big data, costly if you do it wrong. Uh, but but it. if you don't have anything to compare, com any benchmark against, I mean, you can build something and it will work. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did in Generation World. And, and we spent weeks and months to set up on-demand Hadoop clusters mm -hmm. to run batch reporting. And in the end, we just throw it out of the window uh, and invented something. Uh, we did uh, please, more people need to hear this and understand that you, you're not doing wrong when you throw shit out. It's no, no. part of the process. So, uh, the trick here is I managed through the years to argument a combination of new capabilities and removing bad components in the solution that could be better designed. But so if I, I, I usually don't just do one of them, I package this normally into investment projects that lowers the infrastructural cost and the computation cost, but adds capabilities and gives a higher business value. And I think, you know, a lot of people have invested in Hadoop and, and that's gone, you know, the route that you just said, big data is costly, especially if you do it wrong. But I, I, this is important because I want to say something. Okay. The most painful thing is that our time to, from an idea to actually see the result of it was so long. So you almost got tired on it, <laughs> tired of it. You know, that was killing the innovate, innovational capacity or capability yeah. and willingness to improve and test things. So and what's the alternative you would say to, um, to this today? Uh, so uh, I, I'm, don't, I'm not ex expert on, on, on Google, but I think the big query stuff is probably in Amazon. They have super cool things. They have um, something called Glue, which is a serverless way to an implementation of like PySpark and Python. You can run lambdas, you can run uh, batch shape uh, jobs in containers. You can also run PySpark clusters on demand. So this is a framework to run and orchestrate things. Uh, and that is for the processing part. But uh, what we actually do for, for querying is that we use um, Parquet formats on S3. On top of that, we're using the glue to create cat data catalogs automatically based on the data streaming and the and the processing into the data lake. And, and the data lake is, is S3 in this yes, case? Yes, it's S3. Yep. And, and this is the data lake that we have full control over where we store. So it's, I don't know if it's a data lake in its 
general meaning that yeah. you dump any kind of data there. We know exactly what's in there and we mm. index everything mm. by time point. So we know that if we're going to look for something, we can only look at this small part here. So then if we use something called Athena, then you can stream. This is, yeah. again is, so when you query something, you when you know that where the data is located for your query, you can go only there. And then you don't need to move the data anywhere. You just attach a small, and this is how probably how it's implemented. You attach a small Lambda, a small infrastructure component that yeah. has the method to read just that data object. Uh, and then it scans through that data object for your SQL query or whatever, and do the map reduce and filter up the data. And then you combine all these in parallel. You can do this millions of times in parallel for all your data objects everywhere in S3. And it's almost it's significantly faster than Hadoop, <laughs> how we use Hadoop. Um, but you can scan and the a few terabytes in, in, in almost nothing. And, and it's core. cost. And, and this is beautiful. Why? What do you pay for? You don't pay for infrastructure. You pay for the, the bytes you scan. Yeah. And the core components then mm. is for one, I guess you, you have on S3 files stored in Parquet format, right? Yeah. And then you use Glue, I guess, with PySpark, et cetera, to yeah. access that. And mm. then you can really you yeah, know, find Yeah, and, and on top of it, we actually have Redshift cluster. Oh, we have that as well? Yes, because that's the generation two, and we don't haven't cut that. Uh, <laughs> and it's actually a, a, a magic, fantastically database. It's so powerful. Uh, it's just very costly. What would you store in Redshift then? I mean, it can't be full data. It's just the metadata. No, we store, we store uh, two to three days of data of all the events. With full content as well? Or? Yes, everything. Uh, and so we actually have two two big clusters, um, one for the real-time events stuff and for troubleshooting and for analysis of behavior or patterns and so on. But then we have the business intelligence solution where we collect all of it, where actually we, where we collect information about calls and all the nitty-gritty details of every single call in an invoice. You know, that is, we have like, I think we have a few billion calls every month or something like that. And those we store and we process them right now through Redshift. It's so bad. And we're going to remove this. Mm -hmm. We're going to use the, this pattern you just described mm -hmm. with Glue and, and in S3. It's so much cheaper. Yeah. Uh, but in generation two, we actually found this fantastic pattern to add new data streams. So we generalized the way to process any kind of data stream inside uh, a database. So we developed like an application in the database where we have like import validation if it wasn't meeting the criteria for valid for a report or something, we quarantined it. And because there was like misreference data missing, we could repair it over the night, do batch up. And then we moved into valid. Valid was everyone's uh, like goldmine there. You can analyze everything. And then we aggregated predefined things, features that we always wanted to have in longer term. And after uh, two days or three days, we removed it down to uh, S3 again. Mm. And then we index it up again through Spectrum so we can query it through Redshift on S3. Spectrum, so, is that another Amazon service? Uh, it's actually uh, Athena inside uh, a Redshift. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Redshift is a columnar database. It's extremely powerful. Uh, I love that you actually could go so deep in tech here. <laughs> I think we lost a few people. <laughs> oh, that sorry. Uh, but but that's, I think <laughs> we, we gained some other people. <laughs> but you know what? Let, let, let's, that's, let's, that's awesome. let's wrap this up yeah, a little yeah. bit and, mm. and in, in, in relation to... What are we talking about here, and why is this a very important conversation? Oh, yeah. let, let me take my, yes. my take on this, and then I see what you say. Number one, 
the technology we are dealing with is moving so fast now. So you can't have, you need to kill your darlings and you need to constantly understand how do I reduce cost? How do I increase efficiency with a laser shop understanding for the business problem and the data problem? Is that, that's my first uh, post. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. I mean, like, because uh, I don't see people doing that. I see no. they getting stuck in their old Hadoop, but they're getting stuck yeah. in their new, even Snowflake, I don't care. Yeah. But they're Snowflake getting stuck. Snowflake is probably a good product. But I mean, it's, it's a great product, yeah. but it, it's the mindset yeah. on technology. No. Um, well, I, I'm, you know, I, I have conversations where people, oh, no, no, that's not part of our guardrails. Mm. No, I, I think you need to, every time, every day, you know, challenge what you already done. Why should we do it like this? Uh, and at least my brain works like this. You question the things that you don't think you do good enough. Yeah. And then you look at the things that you would like to do that you're not doing today. And yeah. then you look at, okay, what should my use cases that I want to carry forward mm. and continue to do? And what are the new ones? And what would the solution look like that does both in a good way or support or like it does that in a scalable way. Yep. And then you came up with a new solution that lowers the old cost you had, but it enables your new use cases also. Okay. Now, second topic that I've been biting my tongue that, I, that has been, while you were talking, I have had one question in my head the whole time. How the fuck did you sell it? <laughs> how, what is your storytelling and how have you packaged the storytelling to get, you know, the funding? So I, I think you said it a little bit like you, you were onto it a little bit like, oh, I, I reduced the cost here. I, I, I put in a package. This to me, I think a lot of people who are working on this, they dream about going in this direction, but they don't have the rhetorics to make it happen uh, from the funding perspective or whatever reason. So what have you done to succeed to show the, value. Yeah. Okay. Go to production and show value and make sure that you engage and understand all parts of the business. If you do that, you, you can present solutions to almost everyone. Okay. And then you have everyone supporting you in whatever you want to do. And when you come up with a suggestion, you can tie it to a business need. And it's not hard if you have whole business backing up of different use cases to pick those that is valid. But I can say the last time, I don't think we really fighted for the business case at all. I did lots of preparation, but in the end, I just referred to two cases the past year, what my team and the platform have resulted in. I said, here we saved 2.5 million of revenue leakage and here we stopped 8 million yearly uh, bleeding. And that was... By coincidence, because we we looked at the data, and this is the value. Okay, uh, if you want to modernize and you will take like three million here, go ahead, says the CEO. And but he I, stopped me after ten minutes. But okay, but and here we have now the big divide: that how yeah. many tech platform people can connect? Like you now, maybe you have an opportunity now with the data, like yeah. you have. But sometimes that's really hard to connect yeah. so strongly. I mean, like, I think you're saying the right stuff. I think uh, yes. that's what, that's the advice we need to give to our listeners. Connect to your real business cases, of course. Yeah. Not but, all, but I, you know, to get that done, if you're in the tech IT environment, too far removed from the business application, hard. Yeah. Uh, but 
I don't know. I, I mean, you can use all these frameworks. I think they are good. But if you have this unicorn that has the passion, understanding for the business and the problem, and you have the tech understanding, and you have the data understanding, if you create a team of people that can do that together, that don't have any communication barriers, you know. That's cool. Then there is no blockers. I mean, you can just show the value for someone that needs to pay for it and it's done. But, but let's try to capture that into a separate topic, I think. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> let's go there now. Yeah. We have a bit, I, I, I feel a bit poor for Goran and later we have to group <laughs> this into topics. But <laughs> if we try try to face uh, or phrase a, a new topic here, and, and that topic could be basically what we just spoke about, which is we want in some way to foster data innovation. You know, how do we capture being able to innovate when it comes to data and AI properly. And there are a lot of issues here. You know, for one, um, we could have people being isolated in different teams and they don't have the mandate to really come up with good ideas. And you could have problems with building other prototypes that never comes to production. And you could have problems with not having the critical mass to actually have the infrastructure to do something that really works, etc. What is your secret source, so to speak, to be able to come up with, let's say that you and Telenor now have, you know, someone in your team or yourself or someone has an idea. I, I really want to make this change. I think we could have an awesome improvement in revenue and value for the company in the end. But then you need to really make that happen somehow. And and, and I think for most companies that fails. But how do you think, what's the secret source to success here to innovate in data? I mean, I don't think you can, in one or two or three meetings, convince something someone that doesn't understand anything from start. Mm. I, I I haven't seen that. In all my places I've been, it's a matter of building a personal brand, understanding the business, learning, and starting so with personal no brand. You mean that people should you know demonstrate by previous success in some way that they are, have been able to do that and that way they gain some kind of mandate, mandate or, or what do you mean? Uh, yeah, I think that definitely helps. Mm. Uh, if you just refer, I mean, I, I, are you trusting a method or are you trusting a person? Yes, good question. Good question. I mean, most decision makers wouldn't understand any methods or any data or AI, yes. okay? So, yes. but if they m- under- trust you, on your recommendations. Mm. Uh, so here's what I think, uh, what I've learned is working for decision makers. They, if you're an expert and you are, if you're going to present a big data or AI project or a solution and want money for it, then you're an expert on that. The decision makers are li- likely not. So you need to understand then uh, what, how they're thinking about the decision. They will trust you as an expert. So you're not, they are not distrusting your expertise. They are distrusting possibly your assumptions you based going in and defining a solution based on your expertise. Okay. So, uh, what you need to do is you, you need to ground your assumptions and say, these are the assumptions I made when I recommend this. Mm-hmm. I love this. I reckon this is profound. Uh, so for instance, uh, what I usually do then, okay. We have four years of track record of uh, amazing uh, output, saving money, helping customers, step change of quality. 
That's what I'm going to. So if you think that we're going to continue to do that, and if we invest more here, we can be better. If you think that, then this is what I'm recommending. We're going to do this. Okay. Yeah. So that building on history. If if you don't have history, you will say, I think that our data, my assumptions, the data can help us improve quality or improve processes or something like that. Yeah. That's what I, and, and there are evidence suggesting that it's possible because lots of companies have done it, Facebook and Google and okay, okay. That's your assumption. So now I go in and say that we are capable of doing this and I am an expert because that's what you need to say. I'm, you're going to trust this person, I think. And if you assume that what you're going to say, they're going to question, they cannot even question assumptions, but they will probably say, have you thought about this? How are we going to charge for it? And so what's your business model? You know, and then you need to think about that. So that's the way. Think about the assumptions that you made and be clear because that's the way they, they can fight you down. Mm. I really like this advice, actually, because I think we are failing sometimes because we are so proud experts. So we think we're going to go up and pitch the idea. Mm. And, and then with the simple assumption, well, they don't really understand and they don't, they're not going to, they are not there to question you on your expertise. They are there to play on their playing field. And what is that going to be all about? The assumption, yada, yada, yada. Mm. So I think that's where we fail. So it, what you're saying then is like when you want to sell to the stakeholders, mm. Make sure you do the problem framing. Mm. Make sure they buy into the problem framing. That's where you spend all your time. Yeah. And basically, if, is this the problem we should solve? Yeah. Well, how much is this worth to solve this problem? What are the alternatives? To you know, then the recommendation becomes, well, I think I can solve it. And but, then, but and is, then is that really the case? I, I mean, for one, uh, no, you need it's to, more complex. Course, yeah, I mean, for one, you need to define the problem, obviously. But you said something that I think is also interesting, which is that if you, if you have a person with a track record, a person that people trust, it will be much easier as well. Yes, yes. Right? then For it's sure. almost no resistance. <laughs> right. So then the problem is the opposite. You know, if you have people that may not have the track record, how mm. can you still keep... That's, that's where the assumptions come in. Because, yes. I mean, assumption that I say that I've delivered, my team has delivered something historically is probably a very valid assumption. Yeah. But if I haven't proven nothing, yeah. then, okay, then you need to say, I have a team here with these skills, I, uh, my assumption is that these skills are the right one. This problem to solve is the right one. Mm. That's my assumption. There might be others, but I think it's worth solving. Mm. Okay, that's an assumption. So you can start reasoning like that without any evidence. Mm. The second thing I think you, you, we can think of is what happens if one of these or several of them assumptions are wrong? Mm. Exactly. Yes. Now you're getting to my so, point. So then, then you go to the next level. So you frame the problem, assumptions. This is what I think, what I base my recommendation. But what happens if this is wrong? At most, it will, will be, uh, we'll learn something for one million sake. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, okay, but, but now you're getting actually yeah. to my point. And, and, and what I would like to get at is that there are so many ideas that come up there. And sometimes... You invest in these kind of super huge projects that can cost, you know, millions of crowns or more, and that can be costly. And, and that usually a lot of companies do that, and they start with some single prototype and they try to make that work. And they didn't make it work the first month. They didn't make it work the second month, not the sixth month, not twelve months later. Yes. And then they said after a while, 
ah, I don't think this thing with data and AI is really for us. And in, in my view, this is a really scary situation where you don't adopt this kind of failing fast yes. idea. Do you agree? Yes, it's super important. So I think potentially we need to have a mindset, I think especially of the management team, that you need to try a lot of things and expect that most things will fail. Mm. And expect... Uh, you know, basically assume and and be perfectly fine with that most experiments will fail, mm. and then have a quick way to do experimentation. Yes, and they should be cheap and fast. Yes, hopefully. And sometimes you bet a little bit more, but uh, yeah, the stakes may be higher. But but now we're coming to a really big one of the real big challenges. We are coming in, in you know the difference between startups in many ways and and the, and the, and the big industrial companies. The big industrial companies, if they've been around for a hundred years, they are in a, the mature macro. You know their industrial life cycle is mature, right? So they are very much plan driven. Budget everything we do. I sell trucks. I have a, a stable supply and demand. I plan. And what we are dealing with now, both in terms of innovation and experimentation, but also in the core dimension of how AI is built, is hypothesis-driven. So all of a sudden now, the whole steering model in a lot of enterprise organizations are plan-driven and not hypothesis-driven. So I think here, this is one of the root causes around culture, around how to experiment. It's not okay to fail. I have a business case and all the things I do is waterfall and they should have success. I plan and I deliver, mm. which is not, uh, is a very different culture. Um, you know, the mindset of the, of the executive is very different, Anders, to do what yes. you are asking. It is, but, but let me phrase a question to you, yeah. which is a bit provocative oh. and see <laughs> what you think about this. I, I think you will say <laughs> something else, but anyway. What do you think about building prototypes versus going to production directly? I mean, I would probably spend super little time on the prototype mm-hmm. and try to get, make, move it into production. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe I'll spend quite much time moving it in production. So mm-hmm. it will be long time scalable and robust. But the, the prototype is just removing the most uh, uh, obvious uncertainties. Mm-hmm. It's not proving the concept per se, because the concept I think you need to believe in, in some way, and it must be rational why it's working, I think. Uh, but the prototype is okay. Are the prototype, do, is this the right way of building it? Is this the right way of solving it? And try that very fast and say, okay, Using these two different services, we can combine it and do this. Yes, it works. There's no there are no scalable problems here, so this is probably a valid way forward. Yeah. So it's about navigating, not a toll gate to do it or not. Maybe that's one way of seeing it. Yeah, I mean, the reason I'm saying this is because mm. sometimes I hear people saying you should always target go into production directly, and I I actually have. A problem with that, and, and mm-hmm. I think I think that's the problem. The problem is that people don't realize the complexity of moving something to production. And if you mean truly production in any kind of reasonably so, sized company, is super huge amount of work to move something to it production. Is, it is, and we had this yes. in generation one, definitely in generation two, slightly. 
But in generation three now, we are thinking about every single use case as a separate uh, infrastructural independent unit in one way. Mm. It's all coming from the same stream, but we fork it off. So if you do something, it doesn't tamper with anything else in the production platform. You add capabilities. The same goes for this race of co- uh, race for condition or race for resource condition, which is a mer- classical problem when you want to touch same data points a lot of time. It's, it's throttled. Or, I mean, if everyone wants to connect to the big data solution through uh, this SQL client, this Redshift cluster, and run queries at the same time, it will thro- it will not work. So that is now a solution we are trying to build slightly away from for most of the use cases. For the classical BI, it's perfect, but not for processing and analyzing stuff that spans a lot of data. Maybe that is better to do as a standalone uh, job that is temporarily getting its own infrastructure mm. or is based on a database solution that scales on request and not on, on, on the so, storage. So what you're saying is uh, going to production, yes, but we are not going in a large-scale production, but we're trying to be modular in our strategies yeah, so, so we can take smaller pieces of the story to production. Yeah, so maybe I skipped a few steps. But, well, the first thing I think is extremely important is that you build an architecture and rely on that, and an architecture that is addressing any kind of use case. So you don't build it for one use case only. You think build it for capabilities. And then when you have a use case that you want to go to production then everything is ready in the platform to add that capability and use that capability and add, build a third capability or something. So that is something I I don't build features normally in terms of software, you know. I'm, I'm adding capabilities and the user, oh sorry, user is normally defining the use case after I've designed the platform. So this is the classical problem of business intelligence, you know. I designed a report and you spend shitloads of money to process data and it comes out exactly as you defined. And then the user says, ah, yeah, but I would like to have by month here or like by a shop or something, you know. And ah, it's not in the data. So they need to go back and it wasn't even collected in the in your cube and so on. You need to go to the source and it's so much work. So, okay, all that should be, everyone should be able to produce a report of everything and, and how to do that is establishing the data in a good Perhaps story. we're speaking yeah. a bit about different things because yeah. it's one thing to, to do it in, in report and from yes, like a yes. BI point of view. It's a different thing if you actually have to integrate it into a proper like a product or you know mobile yeah, app yeah. or web content yes. and, and, and I, system. And I'm afraid of, of uh, customer-facing solutions. Yes. Yes. And, sure. <laughs> and for that, you know, I actually would like to disagree with some actually talks I heard recently in the Data Innovation Summit that was otherwise was great, of course. But some people that claim that you can go directly to production, I would uh, strongly disagree with. And I would even go to say that these kind of three-stage or three-pronged approaches where, you know, first you try to have a very quick prototype that you try to demonstrate a value for you need to have because normally 80-90% will fail and you can't do that by taking 10 things to production. That would be extremely costly. So you need to quickly fail and you quickly fail by first doing a prototype. Then you potentially do a pilot, which is a minimal kind of integration to production, but far, very far from a full production implementation. And thirdly, potentially you do a production. Yes, and, and you are probably exaggerating, but it's... 
going to production is, of course, it comes with lots of blockers and, and toll gates and so on. And especially yes. if you're a serious company with business processes and you have standardized uh, certificates of ISO 9000 or 27001 uh, or something, we have those. And you don't um, go you to production whenever you want. You, in terms of service agreements yes. and the legal yeah. department needs to be on board on it. Yes, and, and you, you have need to announce service windows and, and so on. And you need to fulfill the GDPR yes. kind of requirements. Yes. And, and if people just realize the immense amount of work to putting yes. something in pure proper production, they wouldn't say you should go to no, production directly. No. I, I must say. All right. But Time is flying, guys. Yeah. So I actually <laughs> want to go to the next uh, kind of topics right now. I think this was a good conversation. Um, I mean, there, there's a couple of uh, core topics that I want to talk about. First, I, I want to explore more edge intelligence, AIoT, 5G. You know, where, where is the whole industry going here? Uh, I think we could start there. I also want to explore some of the the publications you have done. I mean, like talking about lessons learned from how to succeed with data and AI, what you have seen working with your whole customer base and all that, because you sit in a unique situation that mm -hmm. you see AIoT, AOT data projects that your customer is doing. So those two topics, I mm -hmm. really want to explore some to some degree. Cool. I think we should start, uh, you know, moving from the Telenor and, and what we have talked about now, and then going to, you know, how do we understand this industry or, or this marketplace, IoT, 5G, edge intelligence? Let's, I, I, yeah. please start in whatever angle you, because yeah. it's <clears throat> the game to the industry. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a diverse market. Uh, it's everything from connectivity to hardware architecture to how you feed and send data where you have the business logic, the decisions in the, your automated systems, all of these are very, a lot of parameters that is different for every single IoT solution. Um, we learned this, one of the hard ways, I would say, we built a horizontal offering for, for um, uh, setting up new IoT use cases. The horizontal. In horizontal like, platforms, yeah. So what, what do you mean horizontal? So uh, you submit data to a platform and you can build your application on top of it. We take care of everything. Provision. So you, you build them some sort of middleware. Yeah, thinking. so everyone needs to provision a thing. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs the communication channel to the thing. Everyone needs a user management system and they need a some kind of domain model who, who can do what with the thing and so on. So all this is generic in functionality. So we built this and then we look, offer this a number of different customers and they built cool applications and all of them are looking different. Some sense shitloads of data, some have massive amounts of users on top of the data and then very few things. Many, some have many, many things and you send super little data, very infrequent and, and some are not interest of the data, they just feed the data through the platform to their back. And it's so many different use cases here that, and some actually using the thing as a gateway to controlling. So they want like a backdoor back to the connecting to the IP address of the thing where they have a web browser server, <laughs> you know, web server. So they can in the web browser enter the IP of the thing and control it through a web GUI. Uh, and you can see that there's a multiple spectra here of a very spectra, long spectra of different solutions. So that's just to set the, the stage. So um, the stage of IoT is that there is, there, is, there is so many variations of IoT becomes stupid as one because it's use cases depending on their processes and yeah. all that. Yeah. So, uh, so for instance, one 
classical use case is electricity meters, mm. uh, water meters, and so on. They only need to, I mean, if the traditional use case that came up like 10, 15 years ago uh, is that they wanted to fight uh, revenue leakage in terms of uh, you can only bill what you measure legally. Okay, So if we improve the way we measure by connecting the meter with a SIM card, we will get, we can secure every single measurement every single second. But then it costs a lot. So they made a kind of a calculation, how frequent, okay, every 15 minutes we can send the value. And if we miss 15 minutes, we can lose, lose one and it's okay. But if we lose more, it starts to be costly for us. Okay, so then it's just a small device sending on a regular interval, something like that. And then you can involve this and say, why I'm sending every 15 minutes. Maybe I can risk to collect every 15 minutes or something, but I store it locally and send once a day. And then I can send it all it in uh, synchronously during nighttime uh, and do all the batch processing and construct the data to produce the invoices in the end of the month or something. So that is a very dumb meter in a way. It just produces. But if you then want later on in use case two or three that we're looking into, maybe now, then they want to use the electric meters in the housing as sensors of distribution load in the network to predict in real time what the distribution load should be in the next couple of seconds or minutes or something like that. But then the device that sends the data now has completely different hardware requirements and mm. connectivity issues. Mm. So here is what happens in IoT. Your first use case, you can go with a very cheap and simple solution. But eventually you evolve into more use cases that are more advanced. And if you are fixed with a hardware, so electricity meters are exchanged maybe every 10, 15 years. So now we are in to the third generation. They are replacing this in Stockholm right now. I know mine will be replaced quite soon. <laughs> uh, and, and then is, the new one is, is more, of course, more improved. So that's one thing that is very complicated. So how long do you think that your IT use case will be live and relevant on the market? And that can get a drive you, uh, guide you in terms of designing hardware, what kind of data use case you want and how to collect the data and so on. But if you want to be long-lived, I mean, Scania, mm. uh, you know though, Scania and Volvo, they have a very different problem uh, or a similar problem in one way. But they need maybe three years ahead of launch of a new truck. They need to set the onboard hardware specs. Mm. Okay, the computer, the modem, which radio standards they're going to 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, they're going to support 3G three years before launch because all the other systems must be now developed around those very fundamental decisions. And then when it's launched uh, after three years, it's going to be on market for 15 years. So now you're stuck with hardware for 18 years, more or less. That is a challenge in itself. Mm. Uh, so there you need to sort of how can you design your IoT solution and evolve it over time with such constraints? It's very, very hard. Um, so what, what also happens in, in this business is there are a lot of technology shifts in terms of connectivity. So you think that 2G is not around anymore, but it's super important for IoT because it's super energy efficient. You don't need to have that 
it's not very expensive to maintain because you have very few base stations. You have long uh, coverage. Long. Yeah. So if you look at 3G, you need very dense cells uh, to cover an area and so on. So that's, it's still there. A lot of use cases. Uh, and there is a problem now because operators around the world don't see money in maintaining the 2G networks. They want to free up the frequency space in, in there for 5G and all this. Okay, so they need to take something down. And some countries actually are taking down 3G before 2G because they have 4G and they have 2G and 3G, but 3G and 4G is so similar. Interesting. Uh, so what happens then is that some countries actually tear down 3G because they already had natural coverage of 4G and and. It's so 4G is close, but 2G has a different use case because it has yes, a different yes. dynamics. So, so uh, but there are new two new connectivity technologies will come, uh, or they are already on the market. But roaming-wise, they are re- really not super mature. But one is uh, LTE CAT Emmet, so it's a version of LTE. It's like 4.5, mm-hmm. and then we have narrowband IoT. Both of these is similar to the 2G concept, but even more effective in terms of... So the modern version of yes, the 2G yeah. problems. So when you go to 5G or this next generation, there's like two completely different use cases in the spectrum of IoT. One is this self-driving car there or the, the medical AI connected machine that that's going to diagnose or like keep a patient alive. It's, it's reliable connectivity with super high, low latency bandwidth, okay? That's 5G also. But 5G and this new technology are also a very, very low power consuming, sleep mode aware technology to save battery of things that doesn't uh, have power supply. Yeah, so, but this is a really important uh, distinction that people mm-hmm. need to understand about 5G. So 5G is when you're really now going into a topic where 5G is actually several different types of yes. 5G. That's what you're yeah, saying so f- now. So, so 4G was LTE was LTE, 4G, 2G. Yeah. Now we're talking about we have, you need to really know your use case now yes. to buy 5G. Yeah. yeah. So that's true. And and this LTE, CATMET and MBIT, which are two similar technologies to 2G, they are actually 5G compatible, mm. but they are not really part of the, re- the, the, the future standard, but they, they will work in this. So that's super nice. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the things. And, and if, if, I but know but Kasu- I see a real, real problem coming up now mm-hmm. because when we move into 5G, and you basically need to really know which type of 5G is suiting your use case, mm-hmm. uh, you really need to be on top of the fundamental business case, the, the AI case, the use case application. Yes. And the way I understand the IoT, you know, the networking industry to, to work is like, well, the big data guys, they're on the central part. And here we have some other guys, you know, in overalls that goes out and, and do the hardware setup of the sensors. And the guys who is on the, you know, technically setting it up, they are not really knowledgeable yeah. on no, the use no. case. Am I right? Yeah, they, they, it, it's a super hard problem. Uh, but if there are a lot of data experts out there and you're thinking about helping anyone in IoT, this is what you can do. You would serve so much help if you think about this on, on a, from a data perspective or AI mm-hmm. perspective. So, so what is required for you to deliver value out of the data from the uh, IoT machines. Mm. And then it starts to open up lots of interesting queries, questions. So first of all, where will the data be stored? 
Second, where will you train or refine your data and train your models? Mm. When you train your model, where do you deploy them? Mm. Okay. And where, how, where, where can you scale on and which can you compromise on? Yeah, so, so we are really now taking the hardcore stuff we're talking about big in, building a big data platform yeah. and now understanding, well, the guys who were out in the woods who's setting up the, you know, the hardware, whatever, mm. the strategic choice is happening the whole way now. Yes, yes. The data, the, the data problem, the you, data yeah. processing problem, AI processing problem is the whole way now. Yeah. So it's, it's, and then it, all the things around latency, Mm. Uh, latency um, and and the the when you can get the data to take make a decision, so it is coming into play. And if you think about um, a very modern or traditional approach today, is to have this the devices quite lightweight. They communicate data up mm. to the cloud, mm. and in the cloud you can build your platform, mm. control logic. You can have store your data there most infinitely, and you can train your models. You can deploy your models there. What you need to send is the observation or the status of the thing up to the cloud, run it through a rule engine that points to a model, get the prediction and evaluate the decision, and send the instructions back to the device. So that's a very effective way. But you do have the round trip to the cloud. It's a latency problem. Yeah. So, but, but most of these. That. What do you think about edge computing in general? I mean, it has a lot of impact in terms of, for one, latency, of course, but also privacy, right? Uh, how you mean? If you have like a mobile phone, yeah, and um, you're doing something on a mobile phone that you don't perhaps want to share with some kind of server on the cloud then uh, you can do that on the edge in the mobile phone and you don't have to share the data, hence the privacy is preserved. Yeah, and, and I haven't really thought about it like that. But of course, this is the problem though. If you're going to build a model of something as device collects locally, the amount of data is so small. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like... But then you have federated learning. Yeah, but how do you do that? Because then you need to send the data or, or like... Uh, yes, I agree. So, yeah, I, still, I, yeah. You know? so, so the thing is that... You, uh, you don't send the data though. You just send the model that you update though. Yeah, okay. So then that may be, that may be one work. I have I mean, like, into we, this. We're That's getting edge intelligence, I think, goes together with federated machine learning at some yeah. point. Yeah, but what, what I rather argue is the other way around that... Uh, I haven't looked into this detail, okay. so, but, mm. but what I rather recommend, that there's a lot of good uh, design patterns for this and technologies and frameworks. And that is that you actually send all the data to the cloud again, but, and you train the models in the cloud, but you push the model down in the lightweight version and package it in, in a, like a binary form down to the device so it can operate locally. But then you can train on all the device's data from all the different, if you predict accidents or something like that, mm -hmm. then you can see you have accidents for all devices and, and collect that if they were by like cars or something. Not just mm -hmm. that car, because if it crashes, it dies. They cannot learn from that. I know that's maybe one way. So that's, that's one way. And there, this, this tiny ML is one way to do it. AWS actually have a full framework for this where you can train them in the SageMaker model in almost most of these TensorFlow stuff and, uh, and you can push them down, the SageMaker prediction engine down to, uh, this case is pretty massive Opening thing, like Pandora's a box here, Raspberry Pi, which is quite SageMaker, big, but yeah. But, but you okay. can actually put in, I think they actually work down to um, microprocessor like uh, ARM. 
ARM-based mm. stuff. Uh, but but uh, do but we have any key takeaways on? on I the think you know we, we just have it's already ten to seven yeah, here. So <laughs> I'd like to, to to move a bit more into more philosophical uh, questions and. Perhaps just stinging or but staying. Before, let's close the topic. <laughs> what the industry topic now, we are, we are seeing a complexity as I see it in terms of understanding and, and delivering on this value chain. Yeah. And I think that is something that we need to figure out as an industry, as consultant yes. industry, and how, what the offering of connections going to be and all that. Yes. I think that is different. But, yeah. But one takeaway here is if, if you design your solution based on your data objective or data, yes. data agenda, it will help you a lot in the decision-making along this road. But this is the point, right? In order to make the right architectural uh-huh. and buying decisions, you need to be data and AI ready and literate. The problem yes. is that the decision-makers who knows the data is not part of the IoT decision-makers because it's the networks, guys. Mm-hmm. So it's a flip on who needs to be involved because I yes. fully agree with you 100%, but they are not the guys that usually bought the sensor in the past. Yeah, That's my problem. That's the thing we need to figure out. I think that's a good wrap up. No, well, I was actually going to continue the thought. <laughs> but, uh, perhaps I shouldn't, uh, but still, okay. We always have to speak about Elon Musk on this show yeah. <laughs> uh, for some reason. And, uh, and I guess in your case, it's extra. You're paid relevant. into commercial. <laughs> 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 but uh, I think in your case with Telenor, it's, it's extra relevant as well. And, and I just heard actually recent days that they're going to launch like a Tesla phone as well. Hmm. We have a connection to Starlink, uh, their low orbit, low Earth orbit satellites that they mm. have. Mm. And that's going to potentially provide a complement or an alternative to cellular networks like Telenor, yes. right? Yes. What's your thinking uh, about 5G versus Starlink? Do you have any general thoughts about yeah. that? Uh, of course. Of course, uh, there is one very, very. He woke up now. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a good one. Yes. So the the this one very let's see uh, what did you say? Five G five G five G Telenor versus yeah yeah, yeah okay exactly. so there is one fundamental thing that the telecom industry can bring to the table that private uh, uh, initiative doesn't mm. do. Okay, mm. it's a standard that works everywhere. Uh, so you can go with your, uh, your mobile phones now to everywhere in the world. This will not work, maybe, unless he, uh, Elon Musk makes this 3GPP standard uh, according to the telecom standard, which m- requires him to follow all these different protocols and so on. If he makes that, then it's really, okay. that's a really threat or, or threat, it's really, emerge of, of, of different technologies and, and yeah. but otherwise it will be proprietary technology that will be limited and we have number of these we have Sigfox mm. so uh, so that's a, a technology that is similar to the, the NBIOT and LTE and Katamet it's very energy efficient mm. but it's proprietary so you can build Sigfox uh, buy build uh, Sigfox uh, devices and you can more or less use them to a network but if they decide something, there is not a standard. You can't use anything else. It's it's their standard. They have licensed the products more or less. So that's one. And the other way is this LoRa stuff, which is uh, a completely open standard. It's like Wild West. It is not regulated. So one thing that's really important with the 
3GPP standard and the frequency that the telecoms buy is that there's a guarantee of your frequency uh, uniqueness. There's nobody else that can use that because you buy a license in the air, mm. you can mm. occupy this. You have bought the license to occupy the air. And this is then giving you the quality assurance to build critical use cases on. And if you just you, you go with some other technology or try to go not according to the standard, go to mm. PTS and buy a license, then you need to use open frequencies or you violate law. Yeah, but I think Elon Musk as well Mm. said that, you know, the Starlink uh, satellite connection is not a competitor to fiber nor a competitor to 5G or cellular networks, Mm. but (laughs) (laughs) who knows? And and especially I I was very surprised to see that he is actually uh, launching their own phone, Mm. which has a direct connection to to Starlink. And and that works, you know, throughout the world. It was expected. Why would Mm. you buy satellites with the internet and do a mobile? Probably. Probably the best mobile in the world, right? I don't, yeah. He just wanted his own mobile. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and looking at what he has accomplished, I wouldn't be surprised if he's successful in this. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised about the idea. I know Facebook had the same idea, like to run balloons, don't they? Yeah, uh, something like that. Yeah, yes. yeah. But that failed a bit. So, but yeah. yeah. So, so the problem is, uh, I don't know. Can you have these but, above, okay. above in foreign soil? I mean, would would Russia allow you to have satellites mm-hmm. over them, or would they claim that you are in their space somewhere and shoot That's them down? A good I don't question. know. I, mm. It's it's a bit uh, tricky. Um, Do you see them as a serious competitor or not? Yeah, I would say whatever Elon Musk and his companies are doing, <laughs> I would say that that's serious comp- competitive. Yeah. They will get it wrong a few times, but they will get it right in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it will be a great compliment to have both 5G, yes, yes. have fiber, but also yes, have satellites. And I, and, and that's in that, whatever they are doing, I think there is high potential to coexist. Yes, um, yes. Can we already now understand some fundamental difference in types of use cases for Starlink versus 5G? So are they are some overlapping, but are there some fundamental, simple examples? So the the laws of physics are, are, of course, limiting a satellite thing. I mean, if you try to send data over satellite, you can't stream Netflix that easily. It's 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 they claim to be they claim, like, they claim uh, too, but really low uh, Yes, but but what the the, why you get high bandwidth in 5G is that you can you can uh, zoom in. So if I am a base station, I can send to both of you here with a focused antenna sending exactly to you and not all over the place. Okay, yeah. so that's how you get real high speed. With a satellite, how do you do that when you're even longer away? Yeah. You have 30,000 of them though, the, but yeah. Yeah, and, mm. and, and still, uh, if you look at the NBIT case, that's actually super good underground and indoors. Mm. Okay, so how would a satellite, even you, you lose the GPS coordinates if you go into a tunnel, mm. okay? Yeah. So, so exactly. that's, that's, that's a really probably, good point. Uh, yeah. It is. I think it will be a clear compliment, but yeah, interesting to see. Yeah. We are running out of time, but I, I have, you, you, do we want to go philosophical? <laughs> At this one, or, or do you want to take some questions? I, like, I, I really wanted, because one of the key pets that uh, Anders has is to talk about culture mm-hmm. in one point, I and mean, like the importance of data culture. And, and another point- I, I Which th- Anders are speaking about? <laughs> <laughs> Are, are we that different? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, but uh, Anders, okay. and then also, I think you you made some quite interesting 
insights in understanding what works and what doesn't work with your work with your customers. So I think those two are really nice topics. And, and, and then we can have philosophical topics and then we need to go for quarter past. <laughs> what do you prefer? If, do you want a philosophical uh, quest, quest topic? Uh, but or do you want try to, to explore a little bit about culture. I don't think I have good answers, but I have... I reflect over it a lot. So. I, I, I was more into the yeah. reflection. I mean, yeah. This is philosophical maybe as well. Yeah. Reflecting on, impo- on on culture and data. Yeah, so, so here is just, just a disclaimer. I don't try to enforce a culture of a data-drivenness or like AI readiness. I don't do that deliberately. I rather choose a place where I can but this is more natural or easy to uh, to establish. They need to be data savvy. They need to be hungry for insights. Mm. They don't. They cannot be technology scared for technology and so on. They need to be in this mental mode already. Then I can be so much more effective. Otherwise, I need to go and hang on my my management jacket. Consultancy management jacket and uh, do PowerPoint presentations <laughs> and convert. I've done that too, but it takes so long time. And so much. So, so maybe I have cheated through my career. To I, work with the data savvy. Yeah, uh, that's one way. I mean, what would you prefer? No, but, but, so what? Is, but bottom line is that it means that if if the data culture is not there, mm. it's going to be a really really hard slug. Yes. On the other hand, I've seen cultural changes. So I remember me, I don't know if I can talk about this, but I was at Sersenegan multiple years and we had problems with leadership because we had super passionate researchers that made a huge effort driving a research forward and driving the drug development and so on. But decision makers said, yeah, but it's not working. So you need to go back and do better. Okay. They said this all the time to the point that they, the researcher went seven extra miles, did multiple more studies, prepared their way much more, and went to the same leadership meeting to be thrown again in front of the train and say, you didn't do good enough. It didn't work. So that was really bad. So you almost got afraid of presenting any results. Uh, this is my interpretation, so I don't say that this is the case it actually was. But then what happened was they brought in some fantastic management, super expensive uh, with lots of uh, high uh, hourly rates, and they transformed the leadership. They transformed every single layer over two years, reprogrammed them. And the last six months, we at the floor got this transformation of attitude. And what of the one of the few things that they changed was that we stopped being innovative because we knew that every single idea would be uh, claimed to not work if I just fail once. Uh, and, and, and that was so hurtful. So we had to change this. The whole attitude had to yes, change. Yes. The whole mindset had yeah, to change. Exactly. Uh, and they did, m- the, the most effective thing I observed was that the leadership recognized how wrong they were. They thought they were right. They believed in the company. They just saw that those that didn't produce results didn't work as hard as they do. 
But they did, of course. They did, of course. Why would they? They are equally proud and maybe even more experts in what they're doing. So that was wrong. So that was a recognition. I did wrong. I should have been more here. And we should be, they had color types and so on, of course. But that was amazing to see that transition. They did also something else uh, that I found is fantastic. And that's the way you measure the way you get behavior. That's the old saying. And you, But if you've seen that, in real life, it's becoming, yeah. So we measured, you know, the drug development life cycle takes eight to 12 years or 15 years and you divide it in different stages. So you, uh, you, you get bonus every time you pass a stage. So every team now is responsible for pushing the drug candidate to the next stage. And there are like 10 stages. So everyone wants, there were so many December uh, awards, you know, on, on new drug uh, to the next stage. Because that was bonus. So everyone saw that it was, it was great. Maybe it was deliberately, but I think it was uh, unconscious. What they changed was that nobody got any bonus until we prove it actually works in patient. So that could have been a bonus that when you need to wait for six years. But what it turned out is that these teams now had to start talk to each other to see why the things that I sent to you didn't work. Yeah, it, it, nothing worked. So what did you try? What did you do to say that it actually worked? And they started to exchange ideas and to change information and information and the total culture of don't go and question my decision to what can we do to improve, to go forward and win together? That was magic. I'm an awesome, I think. That's an awesome <laughs> learning. I'm mean, also connected to, I think, the failing fast idea. And, and just to once again quote uh, mm. Donnie Leek, the founder of Spotify, mm. that, you know, at, at the critical point in the history of Spotify said, you know, we are going to be the company that fails the fastest. <laughs> and, uh, and that sounds really weird. But if you truly understand what he means, yes. it is truly about, you know, um, capturing the culture mm. of allowing people to fail. Mm and thereby allowing people to be innovative and finding the one out of the 10 that actually do. And people work. need also to know when to stop trying. Yes, you shouldn't do the <laughs> incremental thing, you know, continue for a year on something that doesn't work. You have to fail fast, yes. right? Should we do one, one do philosophical and, and then end on some more, one negative and then one positive philosophical <laughs> thing, perhaps. Go for so, it. so we don't end up uh, on some negative part, but starting with the negative at least. And, and we've spoken about the AI divide, you know, so many times. I, I'd just like to have your thoughts about this because you also have an interesting, you know, background, both being an academic and in the industry as well. Um, you can also see how um, how the tech giants are, are really accelerating in a pace that is extreme. And you can see how the brain drain is happening happening from the universities to the tech giants, at, at least in in US and in China. Perhaps not as much as in in Sweden uh, so far. What would you say in general? Are you positive that the AI divide will not accelerate more, or or do you think the industry and academia will will actually start to catch up a bit? Or what's your general thought? I think, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm a very positive person. I think that those that are not there, ready, ready today, they will be, they will evolve. Um, uh, and they will be in the game of AI. Mm. Uh, most of them, I think, 
And uh, what I'm also thinking is that it's not totally the data again and AI again that will drive success. It's also the 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 the, the uh, what do you call it the the I the idea or the, the business concept. I mean, if you're, if you're proud of what you're doing, I mean, you don't digitalize or put AI on, on cleaning apartments. But if you could, you can build a robot that does yes. it. But a person that is extremely proud of their work will clean extremely good and will beat an AI every time. Maybe not in speed, but almost, okay? So, I mean, proudness in whatever you do, there's room for this in every business because the passion about what you're delivering is extremely important. So that I think there's room for that. But if you don't have passion and you don't do AI, what do you compete on? I can't, you can be on Pete, you can, if you don't do AI, you can compete on price, you can compete on quality, you can compete on volume or scalability, I don't know. So, but you can't compete on passion. Mm. That I think, okay. and that can that doesn't need to be scalable, but it actually works. If we go a bit more positive, perhaps, and, and <laughs> if you are, are a bit more futuristic as well, and think like ten years ahead, what do you think the future of telecom business will look like in two thousand thirty? Do you have any thoughts oh, about you know? It's actually very close in time. So that is not... Close in time? Yes. Uh, things things move extremely hard, low, uh, slow, in mm. my mind. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, if, if you evolve six generations in a big data platform in six years, mm. uh, uh, telco standards are replaced every, I don't know, eight, ten years. Mm. It, it's... it's um, so we're still in 5G in ten years? 2035 G Yes, I think so. Uh, 6G maybe is coming out, so but I think 5G will still exist. Uh, I mean, we are looking 2025 when the last use case of 5G will be rolled out. This is the different parts of 5G promises. And the first one is out now with us high, high data for, for new phones. Okay. Mm. Uh, but um, so far... But, the, oh, but, I, but so there's a journey to, yeah. to take it up, to, to change. What I've seen lately, and I'm not fully convinced that the telcos are, they need to convert to a software company. So I've seen successful products, maybe from Telenor, like um, the streaming service that is fantastic in terms of, they developed it in, in six months as a as a hack mm. hackathon and it became a product and mm. it's equally good as Viaplay that has been out there for for many many years it's better than Seymour and so on and TV4 that has been there many many years I think there is a conversion to software and services beyond uh, telco we've seen this in, in Asia in our companies there and they they are driving banking and microloan exactly. and so on they, they, but here there is a matured business, so you can't actually com compete on existing um, sectors. But, but do you think it will go to? <laughs> I mean, if you look at Amazon, they yeah. go growing like you know, including everything in their service and having the the prime membership. And yes. in China, of course, you have the kind of you know big uh, yeah. Alibaba that provides everything in a single service, including potentially yeah. telecom services. So, do you I, think that will happen no, in so, Sweden as well? Um, let me say what I'm going to, a more exciting thing though. Uh, I have a very hard time to predict the consumer telco business, yeah. but from managed global uh, IoT mm -hmm. connectivity, yes. 
how would that, because that's based on roaming business. So here's what I think that probably will, maybe not even in 2030, but it will be close. I think there will be really good standards that is proposed at that time. And that is using blockchain from your SIM card to charge and, and negotiate on prices on roaming live and, and you are paying through a virtual uh, currency. So there is not this agreement where, where managers or, or, or negotiators sit at a table and produce a, a PDF document and sign it. These are the prices we're going to do for the next one year. This will be live depending on demand and, uh, and, and capacity. And you can get your data through your capacity through from your device or from your machine or from even from your commercial phone or like end consumer phone, you can buy capacity based on a blockchain concept where you pay smart and, contracts. and smart contracts. Yes. So this is what I will think that the whole, and if we remove this roaming ban in the natural, in the same country, this is what will happen. It will be an open market for connectivity. So you actually opened one of my hate topics, but uh, I I'll still have to go there a bit. Um, and I try to do that in a positive way. But <laughs> So blockchain in, in one way can be seen as a technology to remove the middleman in some way. Yeah. For example, it can remove the middleman exactly. of banks. Exactly. could also remove the middleman of like record labels when it comes to music. Do you think it can remove the need for telcos as yes, well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think so. Interesting. But there is not something that you can still do as a telco. You can build networks. Okay. Okay. So as long as you build networks, you're part of the, and you can offer it through this blockchain solution okay. now. Yeah. And then you, you have more antennas, you more coverage, better coverage than others. That means that you will get more of the customers. But is the, is the fundamental marketplace looks different? Yes. It's not, uh, um, the problem here is, of course, that what stops it fundamentally today to get beyond the standard telcos is this licensing thing around uh, the frequency bands. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, if that still remains, it will be uh, a market for those that have licenses. Mm -hmm. And then still blockchain transactions here can still be removed, the, the middleman going up and saying that I, as an end consumer, need to accept the price that I have here. No, I can check with the other one and I can consider, yeah, but the lowest price I've been offered is this one. Do you want to match it? Right. Okay. So then you transfer the power down to the consumer and say, do you want more bandwidth? Do you want, can you wait? And you can send, is it, uh, is it an electricity meter now? You can send when it's cheapest. It's when we charge electric cars now. We charge it when it's cheapest. We don't do it and it's mm. most expensive. I think data and connectivity can move into the exact same spectra. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. That's an interesting um, It's an interesting yeah, view. Sure. And, uh, but uh, and then you say blockchain as an example, but ultimately this is about solving smart contracts yes, or yes, yes. machine to machine yes, so contracts. It, it, many Potentially yeah. it could be blockchain, but it could also technology-wise... Maybe we have another way of doing it, but, mm. but what you're highlighting is machine to machine contracts mm. in real time. Yes. Yeah. I think that is, I mean, like from the energy uh, business, uh, this is happening more and more with blockchain, by the way, uh, we have the PPAs, the power purchasing agreements mm. that used to be done with a lot of suits mm. to do a, you know, I want to buy Ikea wants to buy green energy directly from the specific wind farm in order to have certified green energy. And this can now be done with smart contracts, of course, and with blockchain. 
but I'm not sure that is the way it's going to take off, but it's happening now. And unfortunately, not so much in Sweden as it is in other parts of the world, yeah. which is uh, some of these things that we're talking about, by the way, is happening in other parts of the world already, I guess. I think we are coming to an end quarter past and uh, two last simple questions. You know, what is next on your agenda and in your life or at work? What, what are the things you're looking forward to in the next couple of months or? Um, near term, there are a few um, projects, uh, a technology solution that we support that I hope will transform a little bit of the market. It's not, will not be fundamentally like will be on the news, but those in the business, hopefully will have an, wow. Okay. So you have some cool they stuff. They were first, they are shaping Can the market. You give us a I always mm -hmm. wanted to be that person. No, I'm going to, cannot, uh, but that's. Uh, <laughs> give another beer. Give another beer. <laughs> yes, we need a scoop. No, it's, it's uh, but it, it, it will be soon launched, uh, probably. Oh, uh, exciting. So it's, it's not a matter of long time. Uh, I think, so I'm, yeah, it has been great fun to be part of that journey and, and seeing it realized now and building the technology to enable that. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So that's something you've been working on for a while? Yeah. As a launch? It's, yes, it's not so much data and AI and so on, but it's... it's uh, Interesting. In the sense that in order to be enable that functionality, the real-time streams and the data we collect is fundamental in enabling that. Yeah. It's not per se, it's rather. But, this, yeah. but in the end, we need to start building smarter and better data, data pipelines, data products in order to unlock new use cases on top. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, that's interesting. Yes. And secondly, uh, I'm pretty new in the situation where I actually only should focus on data. I actually had for the six past five years or something been head of software engineering or development also. So I had my engineering, software engineering team. Actually, most of my my team members have been engineers and software architects. Uh, and I will now since actually, uh, formally since 1st of June, but actually now from 1st of November, I will leave over my dual role now to another person. Uh, Leonard, you'll be doing great on this. Um, uh, but then I can actually start focus because the problem now, I want to think really strategically. I want to shape our company. I want to shape the business. I want to shape the, the, the market by being better and smarter on how you can use data. And for that, I need time. time to articulate and position my ideas in a way that is executable and present that with assumptions. Yeah? <laughs> and get the funding and the team to do it. Ah, so you're going to have an exciting 2022, put your yes. mind uh, in the full data space. Yes, but uh, there will oh. be shitloads of stuff coming from the side. <laughs> uh, being center of everything that happens, having all the data that ever passes through the company, you know, it's quite easy to be dragged into every single <laughs> product because I will know... <laughs> everything about every, every product, every, it's, it's, it's a problem and it occurs, but it's also a fantastic position. Opportunity. Uh, yes. Let's see it as an opportunity. Yes. Wow. Cool. And then the last question, do you have any recommendations for guests that you would like to listen to or see on this vlog? Oh, um, 
Port. Yes. Uh, stream. Port stream. Yes. <laughs> uh, that was a good question. Uh, I know there are number of uh, anyone. I, I, here is I, you probably have people from Spotify, but they are extremely good at taking um, insights into actions and 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 and, and driving this momentum of. Uh, um, so just how to improve a search algorithm. How many letters do you need to type into according to your... We're actually going to have a Spotify search person coming soon. Yes, exactly. Because that has been one of my mind-boggling things, actually, in my uh, in all the conferences I attended, where I understood how quickly you could improve and train your models and try it out in use A-B testing. So it was magically, that was an eye-opener. It was many years ago. But that's uh, good. Then you're yeah. already on it. <laughs> you're on that. Yes, yes. yes. And you know I'm a Spotify person as well. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, otherwise, um, anyone around that knows more about data engineering and building platforms, I, that I think I, I, th- I think it's exciting. But I, I know this much mm-hmm. that I told you now. But I have experts underneath me that would be equally or much much better than describing this in it. Uh, than I am, uh, but yeah. So that might be something. But yeah. I love uh, all the technical details you were able to go into. So <laughs> that, that was really fun to me, and I hope some people that uh, are like me enjoyed that as much as I did. So. Yes, yes. Yeah. Actually, shout out to Rasmus uh, who was very active on the chat uh, today. Yeah. So yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right. With that, I think it's time to let go yeah. of the. Uh, live stream and then we have an ai after after work wow continuing that's awesome <laughs> now we want to hear about the upcoming plans yes now so they're going to be serving more beer and i'm going <laughs> to drop their secrets thank so, you very much on this thank, thank you, you very much. much this is magic thank you cool. thank you